BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. A lot of musical chairs going on in the NFL, some coaching changes, some speculation about free agents. Uh, I'm always interested, like there used to be a beginning and an end to the season, and then there was an off season. And I'm interested from your perspective, including college athletics, whether or not you think this is necessarily a good thing as a college football fan, Oregon fan, Oregon State fan, it's going to be a signing day tomorrow. Both Oregon and Oregon State uh, doing uh, big celebrations in Portland. Dan Lanning, Jonathan Smith coming to Portland to uh, celebrate the hall, so to speak. You know, and uh, I'm looking at the NFL, like the Super Bowl is going to come and go, and then it'll be right into free agency in the offseason and uh, a whole bunch more shuffling around and where will Tom Brady land, and pretty soon it'll be training camp. It seems like, no, it doesn't seem like, it just is. Like, there's no beginning and end anymore to any of these sports seasons. I'm not saying I'm tired of it, but I'm wondering as a fan, if you get a little exhausted from the never-ending cycle and the NFL wanting and demanding your attention year-round, I don't remember uh, there being this much hoopla about uh, the end of the season, the coaching changes, free agency, then comes the draft and the combine, and then comes uh, training camp, and then comes the preseason, and all of a sudden you're going to look up and you're going to go, hey, uh, there was no offseason. Maybe they, maybe it's brilliant. Maybe the NFL, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer for that matter, uh, the NBA and others have determined that if they give you any kind of lapse of attention, any lapse in news, that you'll turn your focus somewhere else. Uh, I want to know what that's like for you as a sports fan when you have all these competing entities uh, thrashing about, trying to uh, get your attention and tell you their Pro Bowl matters and their off-season matters and the Combine matters and signing day matters, the early signing period matters, the celebration dinner matters, spring football matters, the uh, you know the, the the beginning of fall camp matters, the non-conference season matters. You see where I'm going with this? Like, I think they are waving their arms at you, like those guys on the uh, tarmac at the airport who are bringing in the planes, going constantly, hey, hey, we got something going on. Don't turn your attention to something else. We don't want you to, we don't want you to, to uh, divert your attention just for a second because we're afraid you'll never come back. Give us a little credit. Uh, that's what I say. I think it's, in one, in one sense, it's driven by television because I think television has to have a news cycle that is, Non-stop. And probably, you could probably trace the origin of this, really, if we're thinking about it, back to ESPN and the 24-hour sports network when it came on the scene. They probably needed content. And now they have all this shoulder programming. They want to tell you what's going on in the offseason, what these teams are going to do. That's why I think there's so much reaching when it comes to guys like Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers and what are these guys going to do in the offseason and, you know, uh, how... how uh, how interesting is it going to be uh, to uh, to uh, talk about the future of these guys in 14 million different ways when we all know, like, hey, uh, you know, decisions get made when decisions get made. Still, there is content that the networks need, 
And the sports leagues don't want you to divert your attention either, so I think they're working in cahoots. Well, Aaron Rodgers has spent the last several days meeting with Packers brass, and you know, while no decision has been made, and of course, Gutekunst being extremely respectful, as he was last year, as it was the year before, and I'm pretty sure the year before that, saying Rodgers is going to take some, maybe the year before that, saying Rodgers is going to take some time. That all is true. Uh, that said, uh, there's a couple things that are working in the direction, Tom, of Aaron Rodgers returning next year. First of all, my... What are those things? Please tell me. What are those things? How about Tom Brady? Anybody talking about Tom Brady? I'm sure he does not want to go out like that, and I'm sure that right now there's a point of like, all right, this should not have ended this way. The problem that, and I think about this all the time with guys who retire. It almost never ends well. Like, football is awesome, and I love it, but the not great part of it is usually, like, you don't go out in your own terms. You go out when football tells you it's time, and I'm not saying it's time for Brady. I'm just saying you wouldn't be the first to go out when, like, he kind of wishes he could play a little more. Yeah, and you need something to talk about, too. Mike Florio as well. Creating multiple opportunities, creating a sense of competition among various teams that want him. Scarcity mentality kicks in. You got three teams that want him. Well, they want him. I got to get him. And the more they want him, the more I feel like I have to get him. And it just kind of builds and builds and builds, and it makes for a better opportunity for Sean Payton. And at the end, and Sean Payton in the end picks the Broncos today. And yet, what were we hearing just a couple of few days ago? That, you know, no, 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 he's not even going to coach. I agree with you. I don't think he's getting that Denver job. Uh, I, and I, we've kind of been talking all along that there is a possibility whether it be 50-50 or even greater than 50-50, that Sean Payton would go back to Fox for one more year because he's not like he's that desperate to get back into coaching that he's just going to take any job. It was going to have to be the right situation on both sides of the table, and it does not feel like that's where we are right now. We're not. Look, I'm not saying that I'm innocent in this because, you know, I like to talk about things in the offseason, and I host a radio show that is year-round. But I tend to find myself pivoting my attention as we move towards February and March into college basketball. And yet I have the NFL, I have Major League Baseball with the pitchers and catchers uh, returning, I have the NBA ramping towards the summer, and I have college football throwing a bunch of dinners tomorrow in downtown Portland going, hey, we're celebrating our recruiting hall, but the National Signing Day doesn't hold quite the same appeal as it did in prior years when there wasn't wasn't an early signing period. I want to know what that's like for you as a sports fan. Does it exhaust you? Uh, does it keep you engaged? Do you like it? What do you make of the year-round news cycle that every single entity wants to create for you? 503-417-7575. And again, like I found myself, I've been doing this radio show for like 17 years. And I used to find myself in the early years of this show very easily able to pivot from sport to sport, season to season. Now I can't do that. What are we talking about all the time? The Pac-12 media rights, the Pac-12 football schedule released in January, the Pac-12 season, the signing day. Uh, the NBA, meanwhile, is going, hey, look at us. Don't forget about us. We have a draft. We have a combine. We have, uh, we have a training camp. We have a season. We have a postseason. And we have a, a blink of an offseason and then talking about next season. And then the NFL does the same damn thing. And I find myself looking around going, there's no calendar anymore. We have thrown the calendar out. It's like we're in year-round school. I don't know when the vacations are. And all of these sports things are competing for our attention. 503-417-7575. Is it brilliant? 
or is it exhausting for you as a sports fan? Like, as you look at it, maybe it feeds. Maybe they're shoveling coal. You tell me. Only you can answer this. Maybe it feeds a passion that you have, a curiosity that you have in the off season, Or maybe you look at it and you go, yeah, you're right. Like, I, I, I feel a little bit exhausted by everything that they're trying to do. Uh, Steven, Peter, you tell me. What do you make of the fact that we don't have a sports calendar anymore? Yeah, it's not exhausting to me. I wouldn't say I'm exhausted by it, but I will say that there are certain things that I just don't care about because I don't think that it matters like at all um, like on the field. And so if it doesn't matter on the field to me, I, I really try not to care about it too much. And even if it matters on the field, like later on, like recruiting, I'm not a big recruiting guy. I want to see them you know, on the field when they're playing and practicing things, things like that. That's why I really get into it. But like, the Sean Payton news and head coaching news that changes, I think that is important. And it does keep me uh, you know, excited about sports and trying to think for the next season. So I wouldn't say I'm exhausted by it, John, but I will say like sometimes it is a little overwhelming because you know they want me to care about every little thing that's happening, and I just can't, I just can't care about everything. And, and you know when you're watching some of the shoulder programming, and, and look, ESPNs and Fox are, are the both guilty parties. When you're watching some of this, shoulder programming you're seeing um you're seeing like the they're filling in the blanks and they're filling in the empty spots with just nonsense and it's you know it's like you know what are we going to do in april well let's debate whether alden smith is a bigger gain for the seahawks or a bigger loss for the cowboys as Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp did. Bigger gain for the Seahawks or bigger loss for yeah, the Cowboys? Sure. Bigger gain for the Seahawks because we didn't give up nothing. We got it. Oh. It took us a little, took us like six months, but you we got it. You don't even like it. Hey, I like it. I you like do it. Do not like it. I like it. him a lot better now. Yeah, he door. duped you, Mr. <laughs> Seahawk. He had three of his five sacks, as Jenny just said, at Seattle. He was second on your team in sacks, and he was making a couple of million dollars, and one guy was making $21 million. I guess this is what sports fans do in the offseason. Peter Sampson, is it genius? Do you love it as a sports fan, or is it a little much for you? It can be a little much for me. I understand why it happens, even ridiculous stuff like that clip you just played. It's going to get a bunch of clicks. It's going to get a bunch of shares. There are people that are diehards and are looking for every little bit of Seahawks or Cowboys or whatever content they can get. But, man, taken as an aggregate, with all three of the major sports, go ahead and throw in college football, college basketball in there. I have to be really selective. So I follow the action on the field. I follow the postseason. I probably follow the draft in the NBA and the NFL. And after that, I sort of just do my best to uh, tune it out and just get the broad strokes. Because otherwise, like if this wasn't my job, John, it, it truly would be completely overwhelming. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, like for me, I, I usually will sort through pre-show in the morning. Here here are some topics I want to talk about. I've settled on like five or six things I really want to talk about today, and this is one of them. But I often will find myself going, this isn't their season. Why am I Why am I thinking about, you know, Major League Baseball right now? Why, Unless it's a major development or a big story, why am I doing it? Well, it's because they want us talking about them, and I am constantly hit with a barrage of, public relations people going, hey, here's the story. Hey, do you want this guest? Hey, do you want... And I'm like, it doesn't fit here. It doesn't fit. Why am I doing this? Uh, we got a great show today. Dana Altman will be with us, University of Oregon men's basketball coach. want you here for that. But coming up next, I want to pivot a little bit towards your stadium. When I said your stadium, what popped into your head? What is your stadium? 
when you think about it. Because even though when I said that, what popped into my mind was Candlestick Park in San Francisco, which no longer exists. That's my stadium. That, when somebody says your stadium, that's what I think about. Well, I want to ask you about your stadium. In particular, if you're a Duck fan or a Beaver fan, what, you know, your stadium and the reaction you have to it, what improvement could be made to your stadium that would be a nice improvement? Like if you were talking Autzen Stadium, Reister Stadium obviously getting a west side renovation, but what is your stadium when I say that, and what improvement? could be made to the stadium that you love most. 503-417-7575 is the number. Great show today. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. What's your stadium? Is it the stadium you grew up going to? Is it the stadium that uh, that you uh, that you now go to? Uh, are you all grown up? Is it the one and the same? Are you when I say your stadium, is it uh, is it Autzen Stadium? Is it Racer Stadium? Is it uh, Moda Center or the building formerly known as uh, the Rose Garden Arena? What is that thing? What is your stadium? 503-417-7575. I'm going to ask you two questions. What's your stadium and what could be done to make it better? And I want to hear from you, especially if you're listening to this show and immediately uh, it, you know, something popped into your mind. It could be simple. Like I've heard people complain when uh, back in the day in the Bay Area about Stan- old Stanford Stadium. I went there as a kid, okay? And outside of old Stanford Stadium, among the eucalyptus trees, they had restrooms. And those restrooms were uh, an interesting experience if you're a kid because those restrooms did not have, as I recall, running water. They had a trough that used gravity. Uh, And the best way that I can describe this for a family-friendly show is that uh, if you and your friends were going to use the restroom, you would stand virtually shoulder to shoulder in this uh, humble adobe-covered building uh, and stucco-covered building among the eucalyptus trees. And uh, you would use the restroom, and, uh, you know, running water travels downhill, so to speak. And the trough just had an angle on it. And as a kid, I went, you know, it would be nice if they had normal restrooms. Well, they do have normal restrooms now. Stanford took care of business in most cases. Uh, what one little thing could we do to make your stadium better? Is it parking? Is it a paved lot? Is it concessions? Is it more premium seating? I want to improve these stadiums that you call your stadium. So what is your stadium, and what one improvement would you make that could make it just a little better on game day? 503-417-7575. I want to hear from you. Uh, Steven, what's your stadium? Uh, mine would be Moda Center. I've been, you know, born and raised here in Portland area, Milwaukee, so the Blazers have always been uh, my team. And mine's an easy one, John. It, it's just activities around the Motor Center, and there's always yeah. been the talk of, uh, what was it, uh, Jump Town? Is that what the one they had yep. back in the day yeah. um, that they were going to do? It, it just nothing's ever come to fruition. Like, you know, going to some of the, a couple of games this year with my son, like, it would be nice to be able to get there a little early and not just have to walk around the arena, like, go into the arena, walk around, go to the team shop, do that kind of stuff, have some type, type of activity outside the arena for him to do, him to keep entertained. That way, uh, you know, time just goes by a little bit faster that way. I, I think it would, you know, attract a lot more of a family audience where you can bring in 
younger kids and younger fans and have them be more you know entrenched as a Blazer fan, a part of Rip City. So I think that for me, that is just such an easy one. And I feel like it's very doable here in Portland. They're just not doing it. Yeah, I remember when uh, they wanted the proposal was to put a minor league baseball stadium uh, over where Veterans Coliseum, Memorial Coliseum is. And there was obviously objection and people saying it's a historical landmark and other people saying, you know, it'll never work. And I can remember even, uh, you know, the city, as the city proposed that, uh, then president of the Trailblazers, uh, Larry Miller, uh, testified in front of the city council in Portland and said, oh, we have all these development plans. And they opened up all these papers and they said, oh, this is what we're going to do. And this is what we're going to develop. It's going to be a mixed-use uh, thing. We're going to put condos in. We're going to put restaurants in. You know, they really, really, I think, dreamed about it. They never did it. And I think in some respect, they were only testifying in front of the city council or giving their, their uh, revealing their plans because – they didn't want competition from a minor league ballpark there, but man, that would have been fantastic to have a AAA ballpark and Moda Center and all of these condos and restaurants and nightlife. And frankly, when you go down there for a game, not feel like you have to go down, park, uh, and go to the game and then go back to your car and leave. Like, you know, there's nothing else to do in that area. And in fact, if you are if you wander too far away from Moda Center, you're you're literally looking over your left shoulder, looking over your right shoulder. I can, I know when they moved media parking for the Blazer games, they moved it away from Moda Center because they wanted to sell those parking uh, passes. Like I I worried about some of the female, uh, some of the women who who covered the team because they were walking alone at night. Uh, you know, blocks away from Moda Center. And I was like, I, you know, I don't exactly feel great about that. Like, I can't imagine, like, a young reporter, like, you know, in that circumstance, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't feel safe. Like, I would want them to be walking with someone because of, you know, people that you encounter on the streets down there. So, um, yeah, I think they could make improvement. I think it's a great improvement. I think you can make Moda Center so much better by developing the area around the Rose Quarter. Peter Sampson, what's your stadium? And what improvement would you make? <laughs> well, Stephen took my stadium and my suggestion for it, which which shows how strongly I feel about it. And, and the thing is, I don't need even necessarily like the big nightlife, the huge development, even though that's sort of the uh, the dream. But just somewhere to eat besides Dr. Jack's, man. Somewhere that you can actually take a kid, that you don't have to be 21 and over. It's easy to do, because what are your choices? Dr. Jack's for a $13 beer and a $16 hamburger, and you have to be 21, or you can walk down to what? There's a 7-Eleven on, on Williams there. There's a Burgerville. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Burgerville. Burgerville. That's yeah. Poppin, yeah. Hit that. I think there's the Red Robin across the street. That's right, Denny's. And Blazer fan, man, every good Blazer fan knows the pregame spot, and it's a huge missed opportunity to take all those people that are like, ah, you, do you know that that brewery that's about six blocks away? Hit that or go to Spirit of 77. All those people are just waiting to have a good option on site. So I know Moda Center, you know, they talk about maybe you need a few upgrades inside. To me, the building's still in pretty good shape for 25 years old or 25 plus. I'm good with parking. I like the mass transit options. Every every max line virtually runs there, but I think Stephen hit it right on the head, man. It's just a wasteland. How about this? How about this? How about instead of developing the area, there's been some talk about maybe uh, instead of developing that a new owner could come in and move the Blazers out of the Rose Quarter, move them to a different area of town. 
where would you move the NBA team? Where would you put this facility? We've seen stadiums like um, the Mariners and the Seahawks in close proximity to each other. Um, it doesn't necessarily sprout up a bunch of development and restaurants around it, but I wonder, would they be better off with that building being somewhere else in some other location? Uh, I mean... Do you like where it is? I, I like the possibilities where it is, but here it is, it's 2023, and it's, it's still you know all kind of the same. But I'm thinking about... I mean, my first shot, uh, thought was Lloyd Center, but that's what, eight blocks away? That doesn't really do anything. You know, I'm just thinking about land that's available. Outside of that, as someone who lives in Portland proper, I don't love the idea of what, Beaverton, Oregon City, something like that. I like no. the idea of it being in a central location. Yeah, it's pretty central to, you know, most of the surrounding cities of Portland. So I do like it for that reason. I mean, I'm not opposed to moving it if it is to, you know, not guarantee, but to have a much better chance of having you know, the options outside the arena, because I think, John, like, you know, we talk about this, you know, with kids these days, like, you got to keep them somewhat entertained. And sometimes it's not just the basketball on the court, like, you have to keep them entertained some other way. And I think that's going to how you can grow the fan base, you know, you don't want the fan base to die. And I think more people are just gonna get more excited about it. So I, I think you are right, like, if they were to move it, it wouldn't be a terrible decision. Um, but I do like the location that it is pretty central uh, to all of Portland. I think, you know, there's been talk, too, about MLB to PDX. And, you know, I kind of think about what, you know, areas, what plots of land are available and what others are doing. Like I saw what the Braves, I saw what the Braves have done firsthand. They've done a re remarkable job of putting the stadium in an area where uh, it's going to attract people, it's going to attract restaurants, it's going to, it's you know, it becomes part of a neighborhood. You look at what the, the Rays are trying to do in Tampa, it's the same thing. Like, this is obviously the trend. Um, I think Moda Center is interesting because it's still got great bones. And the lease agreement with the city is really interesting in that the lease, um, the Blazers own the building, the city owns the land. The city leases the land to the Blazers for $1 a year. The Blazers uh, take care of the maintenance on Moda Center, and then they maintain Memorial Coliseum, uh, for the city, and so there's this whole, you know, it, really interesting agreement that I think would be really difficult to unwind. So I don't, I don't necessarily think they're going to move, but I keep thinking about whoever buys the Blazers is sitting on a golden opportunity. Like if the right group comes in and buys the Blazers, that you could develop the area around Moda Center. And frankly, it, you know, Paul Allen's been selling off his real estate. I'm keeping an eye on the land around Moda Center as well. He owns a whole bunch of land around the Moda Center. Would he sell that as part, or would they sell his estate, sell that as part of the Moda Center sale and the Blazers sale? Or are they going to try to parcel that off piece by piece and get top dollar? Because the right, again, the holistic thing to do for the Blazers is for this organization to sell the team, sell the building, sell the surrounding real estate, and give it to a group that is going to go, hey, we see the sleeping giant that this thing could be. We could put an NHL team in there. We could put restaurants and uh, you know condos and create an entertainment district like Tampa has done and Atlanta has done and some other cities have done. I think it could be remarkable. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about punch and audio. we got great sound, a lot of development, some breaking news. We'll talk about uh, Research Stadium and the west side of Research Stadium. Big signing day parties going on in Portland tomorrow for the Ducks and the Beavers. Uh, one of them in Beaverton, one of them in downtown Portland. Uh, I think Petros Papadakis is coming to town to be sort of the keynote speaker at the Oregon State event. 
And uh, Oregon's event's going to be out on the Nike campus as they celebrate the recruiting class tomorrow. But it's a little bit, uh, little bit of a uh, letdown for me. Because the early signing period, I think, stole all the thunder from what used to be signing day. So I think Dan Lanning and Jonathan Smith are going to be awful busy tomorrow, sort of celebrating the haul that, that was, you know, uh, locked down weeks ago, so to speak. Later in the show, Rob Nyer, who is the commissioner of a baseball league and a former Major League Baseball writer, he'll join us. We're going to talk about PDX and MLB. Are those two, two things still in cahoots? What does he think about expansion? He's been close to the league office for years. We'll talk to Nyer about that. And Dana Altman, the University of Oregon men's basketball coach, will join us in the 5 o'clock hour, the happy hour. Be here for all of it. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. My uh, six-year-old came home from school yesterday, just melted me. Just, she, she is uh, one of these kids, she's like, she's smarter than I am, obviously, but she, uh, she comes home and she says, uh, Dad, you're a good dad, which no one says, right? You, I could, you know, if you're a dad out there, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, the, it's not often the girls will be like, Dad, you're a good dad. And the six-year-old hands me this card she made at school, and on the inside of it, it says... You're a good dad, and I love when you wrestle with me. She likes to wrestle. And so she'll get down on the living room floor, and she'll jump on me and, you know, WWE off the top rope and all that. But um, uh, I uh, was just melted by this card. And then I took the card, and I put it on. We have an island in our kitchen. I set it on the island. And, like, this morning I saw the card there, and I thought, you know, great. And, and we have this new puppy. And uh, maybe about an hour after the kids went to school, I was working, I was making some calls, I was talking to some Pac-12 sources and uh, working on reporting something, and I heard the dog kind of in, you know, in that, in that space where you know the dog's up to no good, where it's just quiet but not all that quiet, like I'd, I could hear paper, and I was like, uh-oh. So I went and I looked, like, what is this dog up to? The dog had the card. And... The dog had not destroyed the card, but it had the card between its paws on the floor and was kind of slobbering on it. And I grabbed it and took it and put it away. Now, I don't know if the six-year-old is going to be offended that the dog got the card or not, but I said to Anna, I said, you know, I put the, uh, put the card there and the dog got it. And she says, well, why would you leave it there? I said, what am I? Well, I think the dog's going to jump up and grab a greeting card that the kid made at school off the counter. Like I could see, like, don't leave a piece of bacon on a plate in uh in kind of uh within scent of the dog but uh leaving a card there come on like steven you have uh multiple kids in your household mm -hmm. do uh your kids often just stop and be you know hey you're a great dad like I, that doesn't that that shocked me and the six-year-old I, I gotta know what she wants like today she's gonna ask me for a car or something yeah it's very rare it's very rare you get a compliment just out of nowhere just like hey you know what i like you you're a good guy <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I know deep down, I know they love me, but, uh, yeah, they don't, yes. they don't, uh, verbalize it very much. You know, you have a dog that does that. My little one, he's four. He kind of gets into things and, you know, likes to rip paper. I feel like he's kind of like a dog. So I'm with you. Like my son will bring home stuff. You know, he's in second grade and, you know, he'll draw something or he has like a writing paper and he wants to keep it because he loves all the hard work he's done. And you gotta watch it because the little one, he, he just wants to destroy everything in his path because he thinks it's funny. He thinks it's funny to make his brother mad. So, uh, yeah. I understand. I understand the pain you're going through with the dog there, but yeah, they don't verbalize anything to me. 
I've talked to coaches over the year, years who talk about that thing you're talking about and that sibling sort of rivalry, and they talk favorably about it. The uh, Scott Ruick, the Oregon State women's basketball coach, will talk about um, wanting his players to have an older sibling because there's uh, a degree of competition that the younger kids get. And I noticed it years ago, and longtime listeners of the show remember me talking in depth about this. Like, I was kind of obsessed with this when my now college kid was like 12 or 13 and playing volleyball. I noticed that the girls on her team that had older siblings were just a little more competitive. Like, they just had a little bit of snarl to them when it came to a competition. And I thought, that's really interesting. I should study that sometime. And then... Uh, I see it now in the six-year-old. Like, everything's a competition. So you grow up in that environment, like, you know, and she gets out on the soccer field. She just she just absolutely murders the other kids because, you know, they're out there having fun playing soccer, and she's just – it's the extension of her competing with her two older sisters. And she's just out there, like, dismantling people. And I'm like, this is new. Like, we, the older kid mostly wanted everyone to get along and make sure everybody had a good time and everybody played. The younger daughter uh, wants to absolutely assassinate people uh, on the field. And so I think it's really interesting to kind of watch that. And, and Kelly Graves has talked about that. And I wondered how much that factored into Sabrina Ionescu's development as a basketball player. You know, she's a twin. And she has, you know, a twin brother. So did Sabrina's brother play a role in developing her competitive nature? Because she's a killer who also happens to be extremely skilled. So I'm wondering how much of her brother's influence we saw over the years on the court. Like, did she get that because she was in competition with a sibling and who was in close proximity and age and oh, also happened to be a brother? And uh, Scott Ruica says, you know, you give me a, uh, a recruit who's got an older brother, I know she can rebound. And I was like, that's really interesting. Pay attention to that if you're a parent. Uh, on that note, we're going to pivot into Punch It Audio. We have the best sound from all around. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. I want to start with Myers Leonard. He'd like to be back in the NBA. He wants, needs, forgiveness. Remember, he had an anti-Semitic slur that he issued as part of a video game that was being broadcast. Jeremy Schapp with Myers Leonard on ESPN's Outside the Lines. Punch it. Did you know what the word means? Where Anything about its history? Absolutely not. There are absolutely no excuses for what happened that day. And... Ignorance, sadly, is a very real thing, and that's what I was. I'm not running from this, but I did not know that it happened. Where do you think you picked up the word? I have obviously had a very long time to think about this. I believe that over the years, there's less than ideal language used in a large portion of video gaming. So you had no idea that this word is a derogatory term for Jewish people? No. Absolutely not. Do you believe Myers Leonard? I do. I actually believe that his explanation. I still don't think there's an excuse for it. He was suspended in March of 2021 for using the slur while playing a video game during a live stream. 
Because I don't think there's any part, like, I, I actually think, I've sat down with Myers Leonard a number of times. You've had him on the show a number of times. I actually don't think he's a dumb guy. And I just, I'm a little surprised that he was ignorant to that word being a slur, anti-Semitic slur. So I've, that's the part of it that surprises me. Like, I believe he comes from a good place. I also think, you know, let's be real, Myers Leonard, not that good of a basketball player. And so I think it became very easy for the NBA, very easy for the teams that he was around, uh, the Miami Heat and then later uh, Oklahoma City that waived him. I think it became really easy for them to wash their hands and go, oh, you know, we got to stand for this. I would have really been interested had Myers Leonard been a little better player. Now, he worked out for the Lakers. He's 30 years old now. Worked out for the Lakers. And uh, I think there's probably going to be a path back for him into the uh, into the league but um, you know he apologized on Instagram he was fined fifty thousand um, dollars I you know I, I still would love to hear more from him but you know he basically destroyed his career at that point and a whole bunch of people you know turned on him but I also think that there has to be forgiveness there has to be a way back if if you believe Myers Leonard is coming from a good place and not just saying, you know, I didn't know, I was ignorant, I'm sorry for this because um, because it's his path back into the league. And I think that's really important. I want to ask you a question, John. If you had a favorite basketball team and they were going to sign Myers Leonard, would you be happy about it? No. Because I'm, I'm in the same no. boat. Like, yeah. I- I believe he. I believe him. I believe he was. He didn't know about it. But I also believe, like, if I'm up rooting for a team, I don't want him on my team. And I just he deserves to have a chance back. But if I'm an owner of a team, I'm never bringing him on my on my squad. Like, it, I, I, just, yeah. I don't know. It's one of those that, that, situations. And that's where I go back to. If he were a better player, I think this he'd still be in the league. Like, if if it were, let's just say it were Kevin Durant, and he was out rehabbing an injury, playing video games, and he said the same thing. Anybody think Kevin Durant would have been out all this time? He wouldn't have. Like, you know, they would have, he would have got with a PR crisis management team and said, this is what you need to say. This is the donation you need to make. You know, you, you need to meet with some Jewish organizations. You need to learn more about anti-Semitism. Uh, you need to, uh, you know, you need sort of need to check these boxes, and this is your path back because we need you back on the court. But I think, unfortunately for Myers Leonard, he not only said this on a video live stream, it's a stupid thing to say, and it's a hurtful thing to say, but he's also not that good a player. And so I think if we're being real, that, um, you know, there's a, there's a double standard that exists here that I don't think many people are talking about. Ryan Clark talking about Russell Wilson. Why? Because Sean Payton is the new coach of the Broncos. Sean Payton made a lot out of Drew Brees, but uh, will he be able to resurrect Russell Wilson in Denver. Here's Ryan Clark. Punch it. They understand this has to fix Russell Russell Wilson. And obviously, Sean Payton won't be tied to what Russell Wilson does as far as his future in Denver, but they brought him there specifically to fix their quarterback they spent $250 million on. It was obviously below the line for Russell Wilson and also the offense in Denver. And you watch the relationship between Sean Payton and Drew Brees throughout their tenure at the New Orleans Saints. And it was beautiful. And they did play on time. And Drew Brees had uncanny accuracy, uncanny anticipation. And a lot of that was heaped, or a lot of that praise was heaped on to Sean Payton. 
But that's not who Russell Wilson is. Yeah. So now yeah. you're going to Different try to turn Russell, Russell Wilson into what Drew Brees was. And so this marriage has to work. Russell Wilson is going to have to compromise, but I believe Sean Payton is going to have to coach in a different manner as well with dealing with Russell Wilson as opposed to Drew Brees. Yeah, look, I, I kind of agree with this to some extent. I think it was a bad combination of factors with a head coach that was in over his head and a quarterback who probably came through the door with not a lot of support around him. Just the way Russell Wilson carries himself is going to turn teammates off. Sean Payton might be the guy to bring Russell Wilson back into the fold, but is it going to fix the shortcomings that Wilson has in his game? No. And that's where this kind of unravels a little bit. Like, I'll give it a chance. I think Peyton, there could be an adjustment period that could be helpful to, to Russell Wilson with Sean Peyton, but I'm not, I'm not confident that this fixes Russell Wilson, which, you know, happens to be the Denver Broncos' biggest looming problem. It's the biggest contract on the books. It is a big problem. Why are the Warriors playing well? The Warriors have been very good. Rising in the Western Conference standings, Tim Legler talking about it. What's up? Punch You're it. making me feel a little bit better about my preseason pick that they were going to repeat. <laughs> I had some doubts here over the last couple of months, but they're starting to now come into form. And I think the most significant development with this team is Clay Thompson is back. Let me throw some numbers at you. Let's take a look at just the month of January, 10-game sample. Klay Thompson is averaging 27 points per game on 46% shooting and 43 from the three. The reason those numbers are significant, those all surpass his career numbers. So Klay Thompson is playing at a really high level right now. He's consistent. He's doing it efficiently. I don't think they could pull it off and contend or win it again if he wasn't close to 100%. He looks like he has fully recovered. So you think about a 3-7 and seven start, long injuries to Steph Curry. Wiggins has been out. Klay Thompson struggled early in the year. Despite all of that, I believe the Golden State Warriors are going to end up third in the Western Conference when it's all said and done. And that means they're a legitimate threat to run through the West and potentially win another championship. Yeah, look, the Warriors are dangerous in their experience. They've been there. They know how to win. Uh, they're always going to be a factor in, in this position or not in this position. But, you know, I've looked at the Western Conference standings mostly through the prism of where the Blazers going to end up and slowly have watched the Warriors climb past the Blazers, now up into the five spot. They're doing what we had hoped the Blazers would do. They're now, uh, you know, currently just six games out, five and a half games out of, of the number two seed. So... Keep an eye on them. They're they're dangerous and experienced. It's a combination that in this Western Conference lineup with Denver and Memphis and Sacramento, it's what's missing in those places. They've just got too much championship experience to overlook. Now, do, can they win it all? I don't I don't know. I don't I don't know if they can win it all. But man, they can matter, and they already are starting to matter. Ian Rappaport talking about Brock Purdy, 49ers quarterback. What's going on with Purdy? Punch you it. studied Brock Purdy's body language on the sideline. You looked at his interactions with the trainer. You watched him at the end of the game, simply unable to throw, unable to grip a football. We have now found out why. Sources say Brock Purdy suffered a fully torn UCL, a torn ligament in his elbow, an injury usually reserved for pitchers and, and other throwers. Not generally a quarterback injury, although if you get hit, the way that Brock Purdy did, the only real options are a sprain, which was the initial thought, or a full tear, which was his reality. Purdy now set to have surgery. 
probably not a Tommy John procedure, but more, much more of a simple repair, something that has about a six-month recovery timetable. So if that holds, and if Purdy does indeed have surgery soon, he should be able to be ready right around the, the start of training camp. Yeah, look, uh, Brock Purdy is interesting, and there's a lot of speculation uh, about the Niners and what they will do with their quarterbacks. Jimmy Garoppolo probably walking, going somewhere else, but it looks like it's going to be Trey Lance and Brock Purdy. And then maybe if the price is right on a guy like Tom Brady, you bring him in and you let the young guys wait a little bit. But I'll be curious to see on that depth chart between Trey Lance and Brock Purdy, you know, where Niner fans sit today, a whole bunch more invested in Lance as far as draft picks are, consi- are, are, are considered. But, uh, you know, Brock Purdy got it done. He has some proof of performance down the stretch. The Niners know they can win with that guy. I think it'll be really interesting to see what they do uh, come training camp. And, again, I started the show by talking about that year-round news cycle. And here we are talking about next season in the NFL. We'll do it all summer. I want you to leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You know what the NBA needs? The NBA needs a rule. If uh, you utter a slur that is on this list of words, you are no longer eligible to play in the NBA. That's the only way to do this, because think about this, guys. Uh, What Kyrie Irving has said over the years uh, and what Myers Leonard said, uh, both offensive, both the NBA had problems with, but in one case you got a guy who's a pretty good player, and the other case, you have a guy who's a bench warmer, and the bench warmer is uh, tossed out and traded and then cut and exiled and invited into a Lakers training camp for a look-see. And nope, but his PR team gets him with an interview with Jeremy Schapp on ESPN outside the lines. And, you know, they're trying to uh, find a way to, uh, p- you know, pave the path for Myers Leonard back. Meanwhile, we all know Kyrie Irving's an idiot and offensive as well. Uh, what's the difference between these two guys? One of them is a good player, one of them's not. Essentially, am I am I out in left field here? No, I think you're 100% right on. And, and Kyrie, you know, he's a difference maker where if he's on your team, your team can be really good. And I think the Nets have been, you know, the Nets have been starting to play really well and they're a real, a real contender in the Eastern Conference. A lot of it has to do with Kyrie Irving being active and re- you know available to play. Where Myers Leonard's not going to make a difference, you know, he's been a lifetime bench player. So I think that is the main difference: is that you know Kyrie sells tickets, sells jerseys, uh, is a really good player. That's why he gets a second chance, third chance, fourth chance. And they know the path back. Go, you know, talk to the rabbis, apologize, say you understand. That's what they kept saying to Kyrie: Hey, you know, all you have to do is say that you didn't know what you were saying or you didn't mean what you were saying, and he wouldn't do it. He kept doubling down, and they're like, you're really good. What we need you to do to get back on the court is X, Y, Z, and they're caught in that position. But I actually think like they should just come up with you know the NBA Players Association, the NBA get together and say, okay, if you utter these slurs, you're gone, or you have a one-year suspension or a two-year suspension. I don't know. I don't know. But it's just, to me, the part of it that feels icky, is the part where I understand there is a double standard. But isn't, and, that, isn't that where the business side comes in? Because they don't want guys like Kyrie Irving to miss games. Nope. And so, like, you can't you can't have that list because if what, you know, let's say just for instance LeBron James says it, like, you can't have it. You don't want to suspend that guy. No. 
let's just say that Myers Leonard was coming from an honest place when he does this interview. And he says, hey, I didn't know what that word meant. I heard it before in video games. I just was repeating it. Let's just say, you know, he's ignorant. And LeBron does the same thing. It's it's uh, LeBron getting suspended for a game, paying a fine, visiting with some rabbis, apologizing to the Jewish community, and he's back in uniform. And meanwhile, Myers Leonard out of the league and trying to fight his way back into the league. It's just it's just silly, and we all know what it's about. We all know it's not at all about what was said. This has to do with the level of talent or lack of talent that Myers Leonard has relative to other people who have said offensive things. Well, and, you th- know, selective about, selective yeah. morality. Back in tw- you know, 2011, Kobe Bryant, he did, the, he did that on the sidelines, if you remember that. He said yeah. uh, slur for a, for a gay person, and he got fined right. $100,000 for that, not suspended. You know, he's had to apologize and you know, do that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he wasn't suspended or anything. He's just, you know, like you look around and you go, okay, uh, good thing that it wasn't Jordan Farmar who said it. You know, and so because he would have been gone. He would have been out of the league. Um, uh, Let's do our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Oh, the Pro Bowl is becoming even more of a joke. The Baltimore Ravens announced today that they will be sending a quarterback to the Pro Bowl. Not Lamar Jackson, but Tyler Huntley, the fourth alternate. He was added to replace Josh Allen, who's out with the elbow injury, and becomes one of the most unlikely participants ever in the Pro Bowl. Huntley threw only two touchdown passes this season, the fewest by far for a quarterback selected to the Pro Bowl since the merger in 1970. Uh, This is uh, an absolute joke, as the initial rosters included Patrick Mahomes, who can't play in the game now because he's in the Super Bowl, and Allen... It's just a mess. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Five o'clock hour, Dana Altman will be joining us. The University of Oregon men's basketball coach they got a big week this week they're going to arizona and arizona state and uh it'll be incumbent on thursday as they're in tucson and on saturday when they are in tempe for oregon to play well like that's what they need they need to play well tony in oregon city's called in rob nyer will be coming along he's the west coast league commissioner and Tony in Oregon City hung up. Uh, look, am I wrong on the Myers Leonard thing? You tell me. 503 417 7575. You tell me. Am I wrong? I don't think I'm wrong. Because there's only two ways. If somebody says what Myers Leonard said, there's only two possible outcomes here in my mind that are just. Either. You keep the door open for Myers Leonard to come back to the NBA and you say, look, we did this for Kyrie. We're going to do it for, uh, you know, for for Myers as well. Um, Or you slam the door shut altogether and nobody gets back in 
for saying a horrific, idiotic, stupid thing. No second chances. Uh, you say something idiotic and stupid and offensive, you're gone. No longer will you be part of the league. Um, I, I don't know. There's only two paths back as I see it. Um, let's go to the phone lines. Tony in Oregon City has called back in. Tony, what's on your mind, man? Hey, John. Um, I'm a Jewish man. Um, it's it's a tough call, um, but I also don't agree that um, Myers Leonard should be penalized as much as um, he is compared to what everybody else isn't. Um, I'd like to see money coming from the, the wealthy and pass it down to Myers Leonard and anybody else that's dumb enough to do something as stupid as that. That being said, I like the fact that if someone utters it, regardless of what it is, it's a matter of hate, and they should be out of the league. Thanks, John. Yeah, I appreciate the call. I, I think the double standard is what... Uh, bothers me, um, but I think Myers Leonard definitely suspended and gone out of the league because he's not been a great player on the court. Again, I said LeBron says the same thing. It's a one-game suspension. It's a fine. Apologizes, meets with the rabbi, makes a donation to uh, to uh, you know uh, j- the Jewish community, and uh, then he's back in uniform. And that's just the reality of it. Uh, we're going to talk to Rob Nyer, longtime uh, reporter on the Major League Baseball beat, and uh, we'll be talking to him about Major League Baseball to Portland. We'll be talking to him about his league. He's got, you know, it's fantastic. It's an interesting transition. You talk about media member to, uh, you know, entity, West Coast League Baseball Commissioner, um, and and for people who know Rob Nyer's work, uh, you know he. He uh, is a, uh, a Bill James guy, ESPN.com columnist, uh, you know, heavily successful guy in Major League Baseball, and of course somebody who is trusted and has written, uh, you know, many books over the years, from uh, his big books, big book of baseball blunders, big book of baseball lineups, big book of baseball legends. Rob Nyer is joining us now. How are you, man? Thanks for uh, thanks for making time for us. John, it's great to be here. Thank you. Where are you in Kansas City, or where are you living? Are you in Portland? Where Where's home? I am in bucolic St. John's, Portland. Wow, there you go. I love that. Uh, and when you are, when we start talking about your transition from author, media member, columnist at ESPN to now being, you know, the commissioner of the West Coast League. You know, give me that pivot. What was that like for you? And is that something you always you were always into, or what happened there? It is a completely bizarre, random thing that happened. Uh, and you know, look, I've been very lucky in my career. A lot of good things have come my way, uh, and often I just sort of fell into them. But this is probably is the champion of me falling into things. I was just about to finish a book. Uh, a book called Powerball. This was, gosh, now five years ago. And I spoke at the local baseball old-timers banquet. You've probably been been involved with that at some point. And um, uh, there was someone in the, in the crowd who heard my, my talk. I had prepared a, a talk regarding baseball history and uh, its place in American society. And... At that exact moment, the West Coast League was looking for a new commissioner. And for whatever reason, 
this person thought I might be a good fit. We got together, and uh, again, I had no idea why they thought I would be a good fit because I'd never done anything like this before, but we had a good, a nice breakfast together, and I spoke to all or almost all of the owners in the league, and, uh, and they hired me. Rob Nyer, our guest, uh, you were at ESPN.com, probably wrote more words for ESPN than anyone uh, in uh, about a 15-year period uh, that ended in 2010. What was that like to be at the, the ESPN mothership? Well, you know, obviously there's a certain level of legitimacy that comes with those four letters. I, I, I have regretted for some time that I never really took advantage. It, it wasn't until later in my writing career that I really wanted, felt confident enough or energetic enough to branch out and try some other kinds of writing. But for most of my, my time there, I was writing basically as an outsider, uh, essentially as a blogger, even before that, that, that word existed. Later, I realized that what I really wanted to do was be a reporter and talk to people, but I just didn't do much of that when I was at ESPN. So I didn't take advantage of all the, you know, I could have opened so many more doors when I was there just because I was at ESPN, but it was great. I mean, I got to spend some time in Bristol. I got to be on ESPN News for a few years with Brian Kenny every, once every week. Uh, it, 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 and obviously, you know, the truth is that a lot of the opportunities that I have had during and since my time at ESPN were because I was at ESPN. I don't think I would have gotten to write eight books if not for being there. So it just uh, it was it was a lucky break getting there in the first place, and and uh, that led to a lot of uh, a lot of great things for me. Rob, there's uh, all you know. You know you live here. You you know the MLB PDX effort and the appetite from uh, the baseball community in the region. Um, you know, as you see the landscape, Rob Manfred, you know, has teased us over the years. How serious do you think baseball is about expansion? And then beyond that, can Portland be a player in your mind? I do believe that Portland can be a player, along with four or five other markets. You might have already spoken about those different places on your show over the last few months or years. Certainly, we've read a lot about Las Vegas and Memphis and various Nashville, excuse me, and various other places. San Antonio. Look, there there aren't any sure things out there. There really aren't. I think that the only sure things are not going to happen. For example, you could probably put a team in New Jersey and do as well or better than anywhere else that people talk about. But the Yankees and the Mets and the Phillies aren't going to allow that. So, what you're left with are question marks, places where you don't know for sure what's going to happen. I think Portland sort of sits squarely in that group. Um, I think what's always been missing for me, and I know my friend Dwight James has said that there's a big money person somewhere. We just haven't, we don't, we don't, we're not allowed to know who that is. But I don't think anything makes sense in any market, and certainly not in this market, unless someone comes through and says, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm the billionaire who's going to cover any overages. And obviously the public financing piece is, is going to be a sticking point because it's just there are very few people out there, very few owners, uh, very few billionaires, very few groups 
who are willing to pay its full freight for a stadium in this era. And so I, I think that that's the missing piece, that leaving aside the weather and the, the, the questions about the market size and questions about the Mariners and their willingness to go along with anything, you still got to have somebody out there who's willing to commit a huge amount of money. And uh, we haven't seen who that person is yet. The health of baseball in general, when I say that, you know, uh, I thought it was encouraging this week that Tampa looks like they want to try to do some things to, to, you know, build that fan base in that stadium in a way that works. Uh, Oakland remains a problem, but, you know, maybe beyond that, Rob, what do you see at MLB in your expertise uh, over the years? Well, one thing that I know as someone who's spent a lot of time reading about the history of the game is that baseball is always supposedly in trouble. And this goes literally back to the 19th century. And, and every decade since, I can find stories saying that baseball is in trouble. You know, the 1950s were just about the only time when there weren't supposedly dire threats to the game, and that is, to, to some large degree, it's because uh, neither professional basketball or particularly football had become massively popular yet. But even then, you had a bunch of teams in the 50s who were moving because they couldn't sell tickets. So it, it's always been it's an ongoing story. The one thing that, that is absolutely, one thing we know for sure is that the franchise values keep going up and up and up, just like they do in the other major sports. There doesn't seem to be an upper limit to what people are willing to pay to acquire one of these franchises. Um, Certainly the attendance has been down a little bit the last couple of years since COVID, basically. It took a hit. Uh, No question about that. But the revenues and the franchise values keep going up. Now, maybe that's not the question you're asking. There's another question to be asked, and that's, how healthy is the actual game itself? Not the finances, but the game. I think they're actually making some progress, they're, um, especially with the pace of play initiative. Now, I still think the strikeout rates are higher than they anybody thinks they should be or anybody who uh, enjoys the uh, more traditional game with more batted balls in play, but they are doing some things to work on the pace of play, cut the game times down a little bit. It's done, it's done amazing things in the minor leagues on that. And, and by the way, speaking of the minor leagues, professional baseball and collegiate summer baseball and college baseball are all thriving all over the country, more than perhaps more than at any time since, I don't know, the 1940s before the minor leagues contracted significantly. So uh, there, are, there are a lot of positive things happening out there in baseball. And you can't just look at TV ratings in particular markets or attendance in particular markets or what the stands look like in April and May before school lets out. Um, a lot of people are going to ball games and a lot of people are making a lot of money. Rob, what, you know, if, if we're building a stadium, you and I are sitting around and the, the, the experts come to us and say, how many seats in the stadium? I know you're a data mm-hmm. and analytics guy. What's about the right size for a ballpark these days? Well, to some degree, that depends on the market, but even big cities are building relatively small stadiums. I believe that the two in New York now are somewhere between forty-two and 45,000. Now, part of the reason for that is that they build so many luxury suites and other special areas that 
it's more difficult to pack the seats. Also, we, seats are bigger now because we're bigger. So you're somewhat that limits you a little bit. But they also like to have a number of seats that creates some level of scarcity, so people feel like they can't wait until the last minute to get a ticket for that big game. So they so they so they are sort of inspired to buy season tickets or buy for all the games they want to go to before the season starts. I think that in a market like ours, like Portland, I think somewhere between 35, 40,000 max is where you would want to be. And, you know, there's some good things about that. That means there aren't any really terrible seats or very few. It means you can build on a somewhat smaller footprint than if you're building a 45 to 50,000 seat stadium. It means you're, when you are there, it feels a bit more intimate. So I, I like this trend. I, I don't think I would care for it a great deal if I was in New York because that means you can be frozen out of games, big games anyway. But in a market like Portland, I think thirty-five to 40000 is perfectly appropriate. We're talking to the West Coast League Baseball Commissioner, Rob Nyer, author, uh, former media member uh, and uh, a disciple of Bill James. Tell me what hooked you on baseball. What is it about the game of baseball that that got Rob Nyer's uh, Rob Nyer interested? Well, as a kid, I loved every sport. I played everything. None of them particularly well, but I loved sports. I loved watching sports. When I was seven, I was a massive Minnesota Vikings fan, and, and, and but loved to play every sport. And then. When I moved to Kansas City in 1976, I was about to turn nine years old, and I wasn't a big baseball fan because the places where I had lived, the, the teams weren't all that good or uh, there weren't passionate fan bases. But when I got to Kansas City, the Royals were everywhere. It's all anybody talked about. The Chiefs were way down. Nobody cared about the Chiefs at that point. Uh, they had a basketball team, the Kansas City Kings, who were not particularly popular. But the Royals were just massively popular. And then they were also successful. They were the first expansion franchise that really was competitive right out of the gate for year after year. And 1976, that happened to be their first playoff season. And it was a religion, essentially. And I got caught up in it like everybody else did. I, I That fall, I'd only been a Royals fan for six months, five months. But that fall, I cried when when uh, Chris Shambliss beat the Royals in the, the bottom of the ninth inning in game five with a walk-off home run. And I was, I've been hooked ever since. Bill James, ahead of his time, you know, when you look at what everybody's doing now with uh, analytics and data, um, you know, was he the first in your mind, or what did he stumble upon that maybe hadn't been talked about in baseball? Because I just remember it being such a novelty. Well, what Bill did that nobody had ever done before on a – Bill didn't invent that many original things. He put a lot of different numbers and uh, statistics uh, in his books, wrote about them, and oftentimes he was – I wouldn't say recycling because in some cases he didn't know that he was – that these had existed before, but there's a long tradition of sabermetrics, where they, not that they were called that, going back to the early part of the 20th century. Uh, people were doing a lot, some pretty interesting analysis. It just didn't gain a lot of currency. It wasn't all that popular, but people did these things. There, there was an article in the 1920s about how batting average was overrated, and you should look at on-base percentage instead. 
So a lot of these, the ideas weren't particularly new. What Bill did bring was a writing style that gained an audience for these ideas. And even, I think, more substantively, Bill would take these things that people were just saying about baseball as if they were facts and then go find out if they were facts, if they were true. Uh, just the one that pops into my head is people used to love to say in the 1970s that base runners don't steal off the catcher. They steal off the pitcher, right? That's a cliche. It's still around a little bit, but it was something that was said routinely. Um, and there were dozens of these things. If you watched a baseball game, you watched the game of the week on Sunday afternoon, you would hear dozens of these old saws about baseball repeated by the broadcasters, many of them ex-players, super intelligent people who knew a ton about the game. But they repeated things without any actual evidence to back them up other than the, what they'd seen with their own eyes and what they'd been told. They would take all these things and actually go check. And nobody's ever done that before. And I think that's really why people, people like me gravitated to him because uh, the answer, sometimes the answer was, yeah, that actually is the truth. And oftentimes it was no. Actually, the, they don't steal off the pitcher a little bit, sure, but it's mostly the catcher. The catcher has a larger influence on whether stolen bases are successful or not. So there were dozens of these things, and they were in all of Bill's books over the course of a decade plus. And if you read Bill James, you could start seeing the game in brand new ways. And that's really exciting, or was for me anyway. Yeah, I always had this idea that Bill James, you know, sitting around with a calculator or, you know, some kind of uh, complex equation in front of him. You spent time with him uh, and know him. Uh, what What is Bill James like? Well, so your your perception to some degree is true. Bill also loves to go to the ballpark and loves the game, loves talking to players. And you know, One of the things that I have always shared with Bill is I love the numbers and the statistics, the analysis. I also love the history of the game and being at the ballpark and just sitting there enjoying a game on a, a, a cool summer evening. I'll give you one quick story about Bill on the analytical side. Uh, when I worked for Bill, this was in the early 90s, the Royals traded for Kevin McReynolds. Uh, and I was, at that point, still a passionate Royals fan, obsessive. And I was really excited. Kevin McReynolds, wow. For people who don't remember, Kevin McReynolds was a pretty good hitting outfielder in the late 80s and early 90s. Not a great player, but a good player with the Mets. And the Royals traded for him, and I got super excited. And uh, now Kevin McReynolds, I knew better uh, intellectually. When you trade for Kevin McReynolds, it usually doesn't work out because Kevin McReynolds was past his prime, late 20s. He was already in, I believe, his either very late 20s or early 30s by then. That's when players generally start declining. Bill went into his office. He didn't really say anything. Went into his office, shut the door. A couple of hours later, I heard his printer. And this is one of those old dot matrix printers. Some people listening probably remember those. They made a lot of noise, and you could hear it. <laughs> and Bill came out of his office. He had a stack of paper about a half an inch thick, and it was the printout of the study he had just put together of players like Kevin McReynolds. 
You know, here, here are guys like Kevin McReynolds. Here's what they do next. And guess what? It wasn't all that exciting. And that was Bill. He would just take something that was out there in the air, whether it was something he heard on the radio or on television or something that I said in the office, and then he would go find out. Rob Nyer with us, West Coast League Commissioner now. Uh, he's written uh, a, mo- a wheelbarrow full of books, and including uh, helping on the Dale Scott, the uh, Umpire is Out book. We've had Dale on the show. Rob, let me ask you about West Coast League Baseball, Summer Collegiate Baseball League. Great talent. You were talking about British Columbia, Alberta, Washington, Oregon. Uh, where can people see this league, and, and you know who does it speak to, really? It is for for people who just want to go out and catch a game, very economically, incredibly talented college players. You really can't beat the West Coast League. We have the best summer weather in America, in my opinion. So that's great, especially once it stops raining in mid to late June. Uh, we have tremendous ballparks. We've got a triple-A stadium up in up in Edmonton starting last year and then all the way down to 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 uh, Walker Stadium at Lentz Park right here in Portland and many places in between uh, I mean I, I I can't even run through all 16 mm-hmm. cities I could run through all 16 cities I can't remember the names of all the stadiums but they've all got their charms and if I weren't the commissioner I would just plan a trip to go out uh, Spend two or two weeks and just travel around and see eight or ten or twelve of our of our of our teams playing in their stadiums because they're just such beautiful settings. Portland Pickles, by the way, for people wondering, June, July mainly uh, when the West Coast League will play Woodbat League, and uh, the college coaches swear by it. Rob Nyer, I appreciate you joining us, giving us some of your expertise and your background and. For people interested in the West Coast League, you can follow them by going to westcoastleague.com or follow them on social media on Twitter, WCL Baseball, at WCL Baseball. Rob Nyer, thank you, man. I appreciate you. John, it's always my pleasure. Thank you. There he is, Rob Nyer. He's the commissioner now. Commissioner Nyer. Like, if I was the commissioner of a uh, baseball league, I'd be like, uh, you know, in the movie... Uh, the natural, you know, Robert Redford had to go meet with the owners. He had to go up to the owner's box, and he had the shades drawn. It was all dark, and the guy's smoking a cigar. That's what I'd be doing if I were Rob Nyer. Leave it here. You got the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I love baseball. I'd love nothing more than on a summer day to see a Major League Baseball game in Portland someday. Uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, dig a little on the uh, MLB to PDX front, find out what's going on with the Portland Diamond Project. You'll hear about that stuff uh, coming up uh, in the uh, coming weeks. Uh, The Blazers made an announcement. uh, They will hold a public service for Bill Shonley, the mayor of Rip City. They will hold... um, uh, a public service for Sean's uh, coming up on March 13th at Veterans Memorial Coliseum at 4 o'clock. So uh, Sean Lee, who passed away uh, a couple of Saturdays ago at the age of 93, uh, legendary broadcaster, the voice of the Trailblazers, 
The mayor of Rip City. They call him the mayor of Rip City. I love that in the Blazers release. Got that name on this show. Uh, you know, hey, we're worth so- – we did something. In the end, 17 years, you can look back and go, you know, hey, we, named- we gave Bill Shonley another nickname besides the Shans, the mayor of Rip City. Uh, Bill Shonley, legendary broadcaster, memorial service, public service, public celebration of life, will be held on March 13th at Memorial Coliseum at 4 o'clock. So you know that. Uh, coming up, Anna's going to pop into the studio. We will talk with Dana Altman, the University of Oregon men's basketball coach. He will be joining us uh, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Um, it, I think it will be a lot of fun to, uh, to hear people tell stories about Bill Shonley. But, you know, before I go to commercial break, I guess what I would love to do is just play a little Bill Shonley story on this radio show. Here's Bill Shonley. Um, Talking about broadcasting. Great broadcaster talking about what he loves about broadcasters. In this industry, how did radio change from the beginning when you were in as a play-by-play broadcaster to what you hear today across the airwaves? Well, in the good old days, in the day, as they say, the radio was king. It's still doing very nicely. But the radio play-by-play guy had to do it all on this day. Mostly TV has taken over, and there are not too many regular play-by-play guys. It's the commentators that do all the speaking. Uh, but uh, I enjoy doing everything in those days. It was, it was a tough job, but it came natural to me, and I enjoyed to do it. Do, do, you, uh, do you have a favorite now? That you listen to, uh, I you know you were talk you brought me a New York Yankees media guide, and we were talking about John Sterling before yeah. the show. All right. Um, do you have a favorite play-by-play guy that you like now that when you hear you go, oh man, that, he's good. Well, there's only one, exactly. Vinny Vin Scully. Yeah, he is so smooth and nice, and he's going to try to go another year, and he's 89. I say let him go, let him go until he decides. Oh, I, mean, I-, I think he's earned that right. What do you think? Oh, I agree. Absolutely. Let him go. As long as he wants to do it and can do it. He's not making all the trips with, with the Dodgers, but he'll do all the home games, and he'll go to San Diego, come up to San Francisco, maybe go to Phoenix the odd time, but that's it. But what a history and what a broadcaster he has been for so many years. I'm going to play a cut of Vince Scully. This is just a, this isn't anything special. It's just a home run call. With two out, Pinero set, looks over it for a call. He's not going. And the 3-1 pitch, a long fly ball to deep right field. She is gone. And I should say he would have success against Joel Pinero. A two-run home run by Andre Ethier. And the Dodgers lead the Cardinals 3 to nothing. Now, he told the story, and he didn't scream. Yeah. And you could tell in your mind, the theater of the mind, that was radio. You had to picture it yourself and that was a beautiful call but a lot of us today here's the pitch he swings it's a high fly ball and it's going out of here i hate that (laughs) you've got it because you have to go over the top right yeah like this swung on and drilled at eat right field it is high it is far it is gone salardi hits a bullet over the right field wall and about eight rows back Never nervous, Jan Hervis. Salate. <laughs> Do it, Johnny. Salate. Whoa, 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 whoa. He homers to deep right. 
and the Yankees take a two nothing lead. Does that turn you off, or do you are you entertained? By no, that? John, yeah. Johnny can do that. There yeah. are a lot of guys that can't do that. That mess it up. Now, th- this is yeah. my opinion. I'm not putting them down. Yeah, uh, and you know when I was calling baseball or basketball or for whatever, yeah, uh, I would get to the point. I tried not to scream. Yeah, I might get a little louder. Fine, because it was the nature of the beast at the moment. And Sterling has his own way of doing things. But that was a nice call for John. Yep. And he's got his little sayings and his rhymes and so forth and so on. But he doesn't overdo it. And that's the key. How, yeah. how do you know? Is there a uh, is it science or art when you know to let a moment breathe as a broadcaster? I think you should know the moment when you should breathe. Let the situation theater of the mind again. The yeah. crowd is roaring. In the arena, it's roaring. Let it go for a moment or two. Don't try to overshout the crowd, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Bill Shonley, the mayor of Rip City, public celebration of life, March 13th, 4 o'clock, Memorial Coliseum. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio. She's not live via satellite. She's in person wearing a very, very fluffy jacket. What do you call this? What is this jacket you're wearing? It is... uh, it is. What is this material that that uh, is very fluffy and soft? It looks like a carpet. That's how soft it looks like. A, like if you laid it on the floor, I'd like to lay down on that and take a nap. Like oh what gosh. is what is this material? First of all, first of Fleece? all, what is stop this? petting me. <laughs> it's called Sherpa, I think, is what it's officially called, right? Sherpa. Sherpa. I don't know. You look like a lamb. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. <laughs> it's cozy. Is it really? It's Do people cold, want to touch man. it? Like, because people, yes. people always want to touch my head. Uh-huh. They, they want to touch the bald head. They want to touch your bald head like yeah. people reach out and touch pregnant women's bellies. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of, but not. Is it like boundary violation? It is a boundary. That? It, that is a boundary violation. I think it's, I don't think you should touch anybody's head. And I don't think bald <laughs> head, hair on your head. Let's say there's a cap on your head. Yeah. You shouldn't be walking up to grownups and touching their hat or their mm-hmm. head. That's a no-no. Mm-hmm. You should also not be touching a pregnant woman's belly. Yeah, but that happens. When you're pregnant, That's weird. people just, they, it's like they can't help themselves. Why? They I don't know. They just decide that it's okay to reach out and feel your belly. It didn't bother me, but I know uh, it bothers a lot of people. Why do people feel the need to do that? And has anybody on this show ever reached out and touched a pregnant woman's belly? <laughs> Raise your hand. If that woman was not married to you. Have you touched that belly? I, I I don't feel that urge. Yeah. I see a pregnant woman. I first go, let's make sure she's pregnant before anybody says anything to her. Gosh. Like really pregnant. And then the second thing I go is uh, I kind of assess how many days she has. Like, uh, you know, you can tell when it's a matter of, you know, minutes, a matter of hours. Sometimes, but that's that's another <laughs> no-no, though. Like, that that's my other favorite memory of being pregnant is just walking around and having mostly men be like, oh, you must be due any day any now. Any time now, huh? And you're like, actually, I'm only six months along. Thanks. Thanks. I got three months to go here. 
Well, I think that was probably a compliment to you because Why? you know because you're kind of petite and then you have this belly and people must think it's got to come out like <laughs> it, it can't stay in there much longer. You know. Yeah, but the message you hear as a woman is, "Wow, you are huge." So you just spend, yeah. you know, multiple months being told how big and giant you are. Do you think pregnant woman, women walk around it, it, waiting to be offended? No. Because that's kind of one of those things. Like if somebody says that, yeah. like you can take that in two different ways. One, yeah. somebody's, you know, acknowledging you're pregnant and probably empathizing with the fact that, you know, yeah. What is it like to make another human being? Guys can't relate to that. Yeah. We don't make anything. We build a deck. We make a ham sandwich. You made a person. That's not a comparison. So, I don't know. Well, there's know. probably hormones involved. But I think, like, once or twice it happens, it's fine. But it, when it happens repeatedly, like, and you're not even in your third trimester yet, that's when you start to get in your head a little bit. Yeah, and you got to be, I honestly think you have to be careful with pregnant women or older dudes holding babies oh yeah those are the two things you really have to those are landmines uh-huh like you don't yeah. want to really engaged with a pregnant woman with any kind of talk that that you know you try to pretend you're an expert on their pregnancy no and then the second <laughs> one is older gray-haired guy holding an infant assume nothing yeah. assume that could be that infant's brother that could be that infant's you know that could be the dad that could be the grandpa, it could be the great-grandpa, it could just be a stranger holding a baby. This feels like you're uh, operating from personal experience. Yeah, I made that mistake. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, you know, uh, they were opening a minor league ballpark at one of my newspaper stops, and they sent me out and said, hey, write a column about the opening of the stadium. And so I'm kind of out there, wandering around the stadium, looking for angles, talking to people. I see this old guy holding a baby. I walk up and I say, oh, yeah, he says it's her first game. And I said, Grandpa, you got oh. baby at the first game. And the oh, minute no. it came out of my mouth, I went, oh, my oh, no. no. And Grandpa, it was like slow motion. <laughs> and he goes, just straight deadpan, I'm her dad. <laughs> Ouch. And I so... turned and I said, have a good game. Yeah. And I walked away. <laughs> You know. That's the kind of mistake you only want to make once yeah. and you learn your lesson. Yeah, I've uh, I've made the mistake of thinking somebody was pregnant when they weren't. That's well, that's a bad one too. I learned I did I, my mom warned me of that. She's uh she when she was working as a nurse was a mother baby unit nurse. And she had all kinds of circumstances where you know, she just said you assume nothing. Yeah. Like whoever's in the room, you don't assume that's a grandpa, uh -huh. grandma. You just assume that anybody could be the parents of that baby. Yeah. Like, you know, you, the mom's usually a good suspect because she's in the bed. Yeah. You know, yeah. She's breastfeeding the baby. But you got to worry, <laughs> like, don't make any assumptions. And, and then, you know, my friend Vince Wesson, who was a wide receivers coach at Fresno State, has this great story. He's African-American, and his wife is white. Uh-huh. And, you know, he tells this story of, you know, he uh, always missed her appointments, her OBGYN appointments. He missed them all. Yeah. And he was like, I need to make the final appointment before the babies do. Like, you know, my wife's going to kill me. He's at mm -hmm. practice. The practice is running long. So the head coach, Pat Hill, let him go. Said, go, go to this appointment so that you can be a good dad. You can say you went to one of the, at least one of the appointments. So yeah. Vince hustled over the appointment and, you know, his wife was arrived before him and, of course, he didn't get there in time, and they had already put her in, like, room number four or whatever. And uh, Vince comes flying through the door out of breath. And he says to the receptionist, I'm here for my wife's appointment. She's already in one of the rooms. And they said, room number two. And Vince went down to room number two, and he opened the door, and there was a shriek. 
And then Vince came back out and he said, my wife is white. Because they had sent him into room number two where there was an African-American woman who was pregnant and in stirrups waiting for the doctor to come in. Horrific experience. First of all, for the mother. And then second of all, for Vince. Whose wife said, what was all that screaming? And he said, never mind. You know, but don't assume anything, people. That's what I'm here to tell you. Hey, I can't wait to see what you have for the five at five. Mm -hmm. You ready to do this at the top of the hour? Yeah, I yeah, absolutely. Even if I'm not, it's happening. So the answer Kinda is like yes. Kind of like pregnancy. Yeah. Like, yeah. are you ready to have a baby yeah. or no? Yeah. Doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because it's going to happen. Gosh, that jacket looks really, like, cozy. Okay, you're petting me again. Yeah. It's weird. Man. Yeah. I, do, do people just come up to you and comment on this thing? That's why I wear you the know, coat, you look actually. Like, you look like cotton candy. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's fluffy like cotton candy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's really soft. Mm-hmm. Is it sugary? Mm-hmm. I bet not. All right, leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I just tweeted out a uh, photograph of Dana Altman. I don't know if he's going to be happy about me tweeting this photograph, but... He's coming on the show at 5.15. Uh, Oregon plays at Arizona and Arizona State uh, this week. Uh, one of the photos of his Altman as a coach. The other one is a photo of Altman as a player uh, back in the day, back in the day uh, where he is uh, playing basketball at Eastern New Mexico in 1978. By the way, he graduated with honors with a degree in business administration. I'm going to ask him uh, what he was like. Could he have coached himself back in the day? Dana Alban, 64 years old, in the world of transfer portal, name image likeness, um, and uh, sitting currently trying to get into the top four spots in the Pac-12 conference and get a bye in the opening round of the Pac-12 tournament. He is going to be on the show at 5.15. Anna, what's going on? Uh, life. Life's going on. Hey, Bill Shonley, uh, you probably heard this, but Bill Shonley's memorial, public memorial, is coming up in March, March 13th, at Memorial Coliseum, 4 o'clock. That's where the, that's where the public uh, ceremony is going on. They're having a private family service that is coming along, I think, uh, later this month. But the public service will be uh, in March at Memorial Coliseum. Uh, I think it'll be. You think it's gonna be a good turnout? Like I think oh, it'll be enormous turnout. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. It's funny. I was just um, having like happy hour with a couple of uh, my mentors from when I was little, and I was talking to them about Shanley, and it's amazing the reach that he had. You know, like everybody has a Bill Shanley story. He made everybody feel like they were his friend. Yes. Yes. When they met him. And yeah. that's incredible. The fact that you can go through this city. And everyone can say, oh, I, I saw Bill Shonley, or I talked to Bill Shonley. I met him once. And, like, nobody ever has a bad thing to say about him. Like, that that in itself is an amazing accomplishment. And the other thing, you know, look, he had people coming up to him all the time, pulling on him. Yeah. And asking him, and, you know, can you do this? Can you? Will you read to this group? Will you play golf for my charity? Will you do right. that? He had a, a constant. Yes. And I never saw him do anything but be gracious with people and happy to see people and i have to be honest like um i can't believe that yeah like he was pulled in so many directions yeah i think he actually loved being the shans 
Yes. I think he loved it. Yes. And, you know, I, and here's what I love. Like, like, look, we brought him on the show a whole bunch of times. I got to be honest. The Blazers hated that he came on the show. They didn't <laughs> like it. In fact, they forbid him at one point from coming on the show. And he called me and he said, what are they going to do? Like, they're not going to fire him. Like, what are they going to do? Fire yeah. him as the ambassador of the team? I don't even know if he's making any money. He's walking the call, you know, he's walking the concourse, shaking hands. He's like the best thing the organization had going at different right. points. But they forbid him from coming on the show. Neil Olshay and that Steve Patterson and Paul Allen, the whole regime was like, you know, don't go on that guy's show. And Sean said, you know, I'm going to come on your show, whatever, whatever. So today when I saw the news release and the Blazers sent out the news release saying they call him the mayor of Rip City. We called him that on this show. That's where he got the name. There's there's a little bit of poetry in that that I know he would have laughed at. And I told him that the last time I saw him, you know, a couple of weeks ago before, you know, it was the it was the I saw him a week before he died. Mm -hmm. And what really I, I to this day bothers me is, you know, his caretaker told me the other day he kept asking for you. He was asking for you on Thursday and Friday, and he died on Saturday. And he, and he asked the caretaker, is Kanzano coming back to see me? Mm. And it pains me because I was out of town, and I was planning to come back and see him on the Monday. Yeah. And, uh, but I've been playing a little bit of Bill Shonley. This is where he got the, the mayor of Rip City name. The mayor of Rip City. When you mentioned that a few years ago, boy, did that ever take place. I, I get that almost every day from somebody. That started right here. And it's fun. Yes, I know it is. You did it again, John. Well, we did one thing. We gave you a nickname. You Do you didn't... remember the first time I did Twas the Night Before Christmas yeah. and what I put on at the end? And it, you said... They, it, it's not on the, C, on. It's no, not no. On the CD now. I think I have it. I think have I have it. the call of it. You, I think you personalized it, did you not? Yeah, well, I was speaking on uh, as Santa would say. And it, it just comes out. All right, here's the... All right, so hold on. You have to know the context. He was banned from coming on the show. <laughs> the Blazers said, you can't go on that show. We forbid you for going on that show. And Sean Lee said, I'm going on the show. And he said later, what are they going to do, right? So <laughs> Bill Sean Lee used to come on the show every Christmas Eve, and he'd read, Twas the Night Before Christmas. And he asked me on that, that day that I saw him, it was the week before he died, he says, will you keep doing that? And I said, you bet I'll keep doing it. And if I'm not on air, whoever follows me better keep playing it. We'll leave it behind. And here's what Sean Lee did on that very first reading of the night before Christmas. The original version in 2010 of you doing Twas the Night Before Christmas. Okay. This is just the end. I'll give you like the last 30 seconds. All right. But I heard him exclaim as he drove out of sight, Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. He had something else to say as he went out of sight. He said, Johnny, I hope you have the Christmas spirit. Better not shout, Johnny. Do not pout. Be good, for goodness sake. And be nice to those trailblazers. Bill <laughs> <laughs> Shonley. Like, well, that's there was the a, end. See, and the joke is, he was basically going, hey, you know, the Blazers are mad at you because you're critical of them. <laughs> they are being petty. You know, they had uh, they had taken away my season media credential. They had, you know, and Bill Shonley, uh, to his credit, kept saying, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do.
and but also was trying to be a peacemaker and unifier yeah. there yeah. in the end. He was you know? in the end. Uh, anyway, uh, good stuff. Sean Lee's service, March 13th, Memorial Coliseum, 4 o'clock. 5 at 5 is coming up next. Leave it right here. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Dana Altman will be joining us 515. I want you here for it. You got a Duck fan friend who would like to uh, know what's going on with Oregon men's basketball or you care about Pac 12 basketball? Let him know. Dana Altman, about 14 minutes from now, will be joining us to talk about the season. Every day in the 5 o'clock hour, we do the 5 at 5. Today is no different. Anna, let's do it. The 5 at 5. Number one from the 5 at 5. Anna, go ahead. This is interesting. UW's offensive coordinator, Ryan Grubb, has turned down Alabama. He traveled there, interviewed with Nick Saban, and then turned around and told Washington that he is staying. Is this good news for the Pac-12? Yes, I think it is good news for the Pac-12. You got an assistant coach who had a choice, could have left the Pac-12 footprint, taken a lateral job in the SEC, working for Nick Saban. I mean, if he gets Alabama or helps Nick Saban get Alabama to the national title game, Grubb becomes a hot commodity as a head coach candidate. But let's keep in mind that Washington's paying this guy and paying him well. Last offseason, they gave him a two-year extension. Gave him uh, about a million and a half dollars a year over the next three seasons. Each of the next three seasons. Then in December, Texas A&M made a call and expressed some interest in him. And they bumped his salary to $2 million over the next three years. That's a lot of money for a coordinator. $2 million a year. But I am told by a source at Washington that Grubb did not get an extension he did not get a raise he did not get additional years he just picked coming back to washington but this smacks to me a little bit of hey you took care of me in november and december and i'm gonna go express interest i'm gonna let you know i'm doing you know you square i'm gonna talk to nick saban but i'm gonna come back to washington he's got michael Penix jr he's in a conference where the defenses aren't as good as the sec I think Ryan Grubb's making a smart move here, and let's not feel bad for him. It's not, not like this is all that altruistic. $2 million a year is a lot of money for a coordinator. Number two. Carolina Panthers owner David Tepper said today that he's doing what he can to break up the old boys network in the NFL. The old boys network of mostly white owners has a history of not putting minority candidates in positions of power, particularly as it pertains to head coaches. There are currently four, count them four, black head coaches in the NFL. Todd Bowles in Tampa, Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh, Mike McDaniel in Miami, and now D'Amico Ryans, uh, former 49er D coordinators with the Houston Texans. Ryans was hired today. That's four. But Tepper, this is interesting to me. He, you know, he says he's going to do what he can to break up the old boys network, but then when he had a chance to hire his coach, he hired Frank Reich over Steve Wilkes like he could have spoken with his actions instead of his words I think he's more worried about the public backlash and the perception he took a white coach over a black coach while saying race had nothing to do with the decision and then he turns around and says hey 
you know what? There's an old boys network here. I'm going to be part of breaking this up. Uh, he hired a 61-year-old white guy who had been around the league. Like, hey, it might work out for him, but I find it interesting. Feels like he's talking out both sides of his mouth here. Number three in the five at five. Anna, go. Did you hear about the 22-year-old high school basketball coach that got fired because she posed as a 13-year-old in a JV basketball game? Arlisha Boykins, the JV coach and the varsity head coach, were all fired as a result (laughs) of this incident. This is an update today. Uh, This is so bizarre. So the 13-year-old player on the JV team couldn't make the game because she had to play for a club basketball tournament that same day. So instead of just playing with one less player, Boykins took matters into her own hands and suited up as a student athlete. So you have a full-grown adult out there on the court, driving the lane for a layup, getting a block, nailing free throws. The 13-year-old's father spoke about the situation, says he was shocked the coach would do such a thing. School's investigating, students' families asking for an apology. And interestingly enough, that team and uh, the parents have elected to stop playing for the rest of the season. Everybody's done. They're all thrown in the case. Uh, I don't get that part of it. I don't either. Why? But but I noticed they only had one player on the bench. Yeah. So I get the temptation. But it should have just been a temptation. (laughs) It should not have actually been a 22-year-old woman on the court blocking shots. Oh, I watched video. Blocking shots, (laughs) driving for layups. And, like, not even trying to pretend that she was a high school JV player. It's so weird. Such a weird, weird decision. I actually think it would be fun to participate in a game like that if everybody knew that you were 22, whatever. Like, you could just dominate, right? You get an idea of what it would be like to be LeBron, okay? But this should never have happened. I'm glad they fired the head coach because that was an update, right? The head coach wasn't originally fired. Yeah, everyone's gone. Everyone's everyone's fired. <laughs> like because I guess the the varsity coach encouraged the decision. <laughs> the head coach, they were all, all sort of in on it. This was an yeah. away game on Saturday, and they didn't even tell school officials about it. They didn't even know about this until the following Monday. And so both the JV and the varsity teams have decided to scrap the season. And by the way, I think they lost the game. <laughs> I, I was looking at the score. They were down by eight when, at the point where I was watching. Stephen, how many points could you score at age 22 in a high school game playing JVs? Ooh, a lot. A lot of points. <laughs> I love this. I don't even know how many. I, fun fact, never played JV basketball. There you go. Went right to varsity. That's right. What was that like? Freshman on varsity? No, I played as a freshman on freshman and then went to uh, varsity as a sophomore. There you go. Look at this guy. Wow. Ringer. That's why we're going to get a three-on-three team together. Get Peter and Steven, and I'll just distribute. That's the plan. (laughs) Number four in the five at five. All right. This story is pretty cute. Uh, Georgia football player and a Georgia volleyball player decide together that they uh, would get engaged. And then in a classic 2023 twist of fate, they entered the transfer portal together and announced that they're going to Mississippi State together. Georgia tight end Ryland 
I think it's Getty, and setter Alexa Fortin announced their joint transfer to Mississippi State. Fortin displaying the engagement ring as the happy couple donned their new maroon Bulldogs jerseys. Cowbells for this one. That's the Mississippi State thing. Bring on the cowbells. Uh, sign of the times. Uh, Sports Illustrated would have taken this couple, stuck them in the back of the magazine back of the day, and put it as signs of the apocalypse. They used to do that as a feature in the old magazine. This is well before your time, most of you listeners. Uh, signs of the apocalypse. This, this thing. Two sweethearts. Are they engaged, right? Yeah. You yeah. said engaged? Engaged and in the portal together. <laughs> Happily ever after. Number five in our five at five. Well, turns out singer John Mayer um, has a really big cheerleader in Hall of Famer Bill Walton. So I didn't know. John Mayer does these Dead and Company concerts. It's like a mm. cover band for the Grateful Dead. And I guess Bill Walton uh, really like pumps him up before the shows. Mayer says oh, that yeah. he speaks with his cadence. Go out there. Give it your absolute all. Don't be shy. That's my best Bill Walton impression. And uh, he says that it really helps him. I guess Bill Walton has seen him perform a number of times on this Grateful Dead spinoff band. Walton is a phenomenal motivator. He's got a little Tony Robbins in him. Yeah. In April of 2020, a month into the pandemic, I brought him on this show because we were all kind of struggling with, hey, we're going to be in two weeks of isolation and then we're going to be back. And all of a sudden it wasn't two weeks. Okay, we were at a month. And I was like, we need some Bill Walton in the world. Here's how it sounded. Imagine you're John Mayer, okay? You're about to go out, you know, on tour, your concert, whatever. Bill Walton did this for BFT listeners back in the day. You can bring the music down, Stephen, as Bill Walton gives you all a motivational word or two. We will get by. We will survive. We are alive. Just think about those moments, you know, when it's tough. When you're on the bottom of a long, hard climb, when you don't know how the game is going to play out, but you look around and you see who's there and you see who's on your side. We are Oregon. We are going to get this done. We are the luckiest people in the world. We are alive. We can make a difference. Here we go, John. Much love, eternal gratitude, shine on, heal on, ride on, play on, carry on, Oregon on, BFT on, yes, Canzano on. Thank you, John. I'm ready to go play a concert, you know? Why is that not on a T-shirt? Everything that he just said. Well, it more or less is. Bill Walton, psychedelic Bill Walton. By the way, he told me he was coming on the show last week. And then I reached out to him immediately and said, okay, you want to say you want to come on the show? And he goes, uh, this week's not good for me. You know, I'll circle back. <laughs> That's kind of a lot going the, on. The mind of Bill Walton. It's a maze. And amazing at the same time. Uh, Dana Altman coming along, Oregon Ducks men's basketball coach. He's next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. It's been a strange basketball season in the Pac-12, but I got to tell you, I'm looking at the standings right now. Oregon is sitting in a decent position. They're seven and four in conference play. UCLA on top at eight and two. Uh, Oregon coming off a big win against Utah. By the way, Dana Altman in his career, 
23-2 and two against Utah. What is it about Utah? Dana Altman joining us now. Utah, they must see you coming, and they must just run and hide. Well, we've been very fortunate a number of times, John, but uh, it is <laughs> kind of amazing stat because they've had some really good ball teams. Larry did a great job there for 10 years, and uh, Craig's doing a great job. But for whatever reason, um, you know, we've been really fortunate. We've beaten them down in Vegas in the tournament, I think, four or five times. And um, so just been one of those one of those deals, um, we have a couple that are against us, so it's good to have one that's for us. I, I heard that, you know, this season obviously has had some tough games and it's had some great moments sort of up and down, but, you know, you got in your car after a tough loss, you just start driving on I-5. Is that true? Do you just got in the car and said, I need to clear my head and go for a drive? Well, I got that from Tim Floyd a number of years ago. Um you know, he used to jump in his car and try to clear his head before a ball game. And and, uh, and it was after the Arizona State game, we, we played really poorly and um, couldn't sleep. And so I just got up and drove for a while trying to figure out, you know, what we could do to try to get the guys going. We got a good group, but for whatever reason, uh, our consistency hasn't been what it should be. Some of that we use an excuse that we were banged up there for a while, and uh, you can see the difference that Jermaine Cousnard and Keyshawn have made since they've been healthy. Uh, Nate Biddle's healthy now and playing pretty good. So it's great to have those guys back, and hopefully now with our roster healthy, uh, we'll be able to make a push here in February. But we have some really tough games, tough road trip coming up to Arizona, and then we've got UCLA and USC coming in, so we've got our work cut out for us because we've got a tough schedule ahead. Strategy-wise, you know, you get healthy, but does the strategy change or has it changed in the second half of the season, or how has how has the plan changed from maybe the first half of the season to now, what you're, what you're trying to do? Well, it's back to where, you know, we're going to try to press and extend our defense a lot. You know, when our numbers were down, uh, we weren't able to use our presses or change our defenses, you know, like we have in, in past years that have been a little successful for us. Uh, you know, Will Richardson had to stay on the floor for 40 minutes. Uh, we were trying to keep Dante on the floor for 40 minutes, you know, so we kind of moved our defense back, played a lot more half court. Uh, since we've got the guys back, we're trying to extend our defense a little bit, trying to play our depth. You know, I do feel like we've got 10, 11 guys that, that we can throw out there at any time. And so hopefully we'll be able to go back and get our presses going, get our defenses changed up a little bit offensively, push the tempo a little bit more than we have uh, in the first part of the season. So definitely we've changed our strategy, trying to use our depth. The conference tournament obviously looming in March. It, you're sitting right now in the five spot. How how important would that for you be for you guys to get in one of those top four positions and and get a first round bye? Oh, it's big, John. You know we we need to play well here down the stretch just to get our own confidence going and and get a good feel. But with you know, Arizona and, and UCLA being very strong teams, top 10 teams in the country, um, you know, you 
don't want to face them on a fourth night. You know, you got to try to get in that top four. Um, you know, you're probably going to have to beat both of them. It'd be a lot easier or a lot better to do it on a three-game schedule than a four-game schedule. And even with our depth, um, you know, we'd like to get in that top four. First of all, it'd mean that we played pretty well down the stretch, and that would give us some confidence. But second of all, three games versus four is, is definitely, you know, something that would be very advantageous for us. We did do it in 19, won four games and four nights. But, uh, you know, I'd like to finish strong here, get in the top four, and then go swing away in Vegas. Dana Altman with us, University of Oregon men's basketball coach. I want to go back to 1980. You are a, uh, a letter winner at Eastern New Mexico. You're playing basketball. You you graduate with a with honors and a degree in business administration. And what was the plan then? Did you want to be a basketball coach? Did you want to be a lawyer? How did that all work out? Well, you know, I took the LSAT, and I my grandmother wanted me to go to law school awfully bad she had offered to pay for the whole thing which was kind of nice of her but uh and i and i just didn't see myself doing that um you know so i wanted to go on and get an mba and so i to help me pay for it i took a ga position um at western state a division two school just uh, to help me pay for my school and and i just really enjoyed it for two years um and went back to the junior college that I played at and started coaching and just figured I'd give it a give it a try and see how it worked out and uh, spent four years in the junior college ranks and and then I just lucked into Mitch Richmond um, and for those of you who are old enough to remember Mitch is a Hall of Famer and uh, you know an NBA all-star and spent 15 years in the NBA and uh, you know, he, he came and played for me in junior college and really kick-started my career. I really owe everything to him because uh, he came along at the time. We went 35-5 and five and 34-4 and four those two years he played for me in junior college and really jump-started my career. I've thought about you in recent years as the portal and NIL have come on the scene because you've been here this whole time and uh, you're one of the few people that's got the perspective with your community college coaching and, and such. Like, you know, uh, what do you make of what's happening right now, and how have you navigated what is changing, it seems like, on a month-to-month basis in college athletics? Well, John, it really is a time of change, um, you know, and you can either change your way of thinking and stay with it or fall way behind. And... Um, you know, I I think it's great for for student athletes, you know, to get some of the benefits. Um, you know, you worry about whether they're fighting through some adversity at times because um, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. But you know, that's a learning lesson all of its in itself. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of positives for it, especially for student athletes. Um, you know, the negatives will probably be brought out in the next few years, whether, you know, graduation ratios rates go way down because everybody's transferring once, twice. Um, you know, I hope that, you know, students will fight through some adversity at times. I think back to some of the young men that I've worked with over 
the years. And Anthony Tolliver, you know, as a freshman for me at Creighton, played, you know, one minute, you know, and averaged one point a game. And his, his sophomore year, he averaged five points a game. And today he would have transferred. He stayed with it and was all-conference, you know, his junior and senior year and spent 11 years in the NBA. Uh, so there are adv- advantages of young people, you know, fighting through situations, knowing they made a good decision and sticking with that decision. Um, but I, I do agree that, you know, college students in athletics should have the same freedom to go where they want like any other student. And, you know, I want guys that want to be at Oregon, that want to work with us. I don't think we can have a championship team and win another Pac-12 championship unless we have guys that want to be there. And it's a long season. We have the longest collegiate season of any sport. And for that six months, October 1 to hopefully April 1, those guys got to be all in. And they got to know they want to be there. And so, uh, you know, I, I think guys should have the freedom to go where they think it's the best opportunity for them. And I want guys like that at Oregon. Hopefully guys will fight through some adversity when things don't go their way because it's not always going to go their way. And, that, and that's part of the college experience, too, is is learning to fight adversity and, and work your way through it. Yeah, I think we watched those guys in your program when, you know, you had that group that was Dylan Brooks and Tyler Dorsey and Jordan Bell and a young Peyton Pritchard. There was there were guys that we got to watch grow and they got better and they dealt with, you know, there was some grit in that because things didn't go their way in year two or maybe year three and it blossomed and bloomed. And I just wonder if that era of basketball, can we recapture that? Can anybody recapture that or how much, how much more challenging that is as you talk about, you know, guys being willing to, to stick around when the portal's there and everybody's whispering in their ear. Yeah, that's a good question, John. And, and, um, you know, like your career, anybody's career, you got to fight through adversity. Uh, any relationship, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've been married for almost 40 years now, and there's ups and downs. And learning to fight through those ups and downs is, is a big part of education. And I talk to our team about that. I, no game goes straight up. Nobody's legion career goes straight up. You know, it's up and then down, and, you know, you're kind of judged by how you respond when you are down. And the ups and downs of, of a season of within a game, you know, fighting through that adversity is, is a big part of education, a big, big part of growth. And um, so I hope we don't lose that. And I think there are a lot of young people who, who understand that and will fight through that. Um, but, again – you know, there are other opportunities, you know, for our student athletes. And if they feel a better a school is better for them, a coach is better for them, you know, I understand that they've got one collegiate career and I want them to, to be where they think they can maximize their potential. Um, I just hope that the guys in our program feel it's us, you know, and want to stay because, uh, you know, I don't want guys to leave. You know, I think experience and experience in a program – is a big, big benefit. You know, Brooks stayed around for three years. Bell was with us for three years. And they fought through injury. They both, you know, broke a foot when they were here and went through stress fractures. And uh, Dylan Ennis was with us for, you know, three years. And, you know, those guys that are around for a while, um, 
you know, Peyton stayed four years, you know, and I'm so proud of him. And in fact, I, you know, I've talked with the Celtics over, you know, the last month and they're just so happy that he just continues to work and his role has changed a little bit. And, you know, heck they're winning the East, you know, he's on a great team. And so, you know, you just like hearing those stories of guys continuing to grow and Boucher and Eugene Omarui, Chris Duarte, those guys are all, you know, fighting their tails off trying to trying to make it at that next level, which is very, very competitive. I know that the season has been a little up and down, and there were people early that were frustrated, but you, you, you look like you're healthy and you're playing good basketball when it counts because here comes this road trip uh, Thursday at Arizona, Saturday at ASU. I got a chance. I was in Arizona, and I took a peek at Arizona State, watched them play twice. I saw them against USC. I think USC's playing really well right now. But, um, you, you know, you're getting these opportunities when maybe it's lined up for you. I mean, if there's a blessing wrapped into this season, it feels like that's it. No, I'd agree. You know, we've got three or four quad one games coming up. And, um, you know, so we, we've got our chance to impress the NCAA committee uh, because we do have UCLA and USC at home next week and obviously two what they call quad one games this week at Arizona and at Arizona State. So we will have our opportunities you know, to put ourselves in a good position, but it's going to be tough. And I, I told our team, you know, we're going to have to play very well and we're going to have to be a lot more consistent than what we've been. And if we can do those things, I do think we're talented enough. I think we're good enough, you know, to upset some people here, but you know, it's going to be an upset if we beat Arizona on the road and it'll be an upset if we beat Arizona state on the road and, we're going to have to go swing away, try to make something happen that uh, a lot of people don't think can happen. Yeah, I was talking to somebody at the Pac-12 office, uh, Jamie Zanetovich, the uh, supervisor of basketball, and we were talking. I said, what kinds of things can the conference do to help the teams? And he talked about you know, some of the uh, scheduling and strategy or, that they have discussed over the years. But I wasn't aware that some of the schools travel with charter, some don't. Where, where do you stand on that for your team? I, I mean, if you have the option, you want a charter, don't you? Absolutely, John. And, um, you know, it's kind of one of those questions that the, the conference and, and our individual schools have to answer. You know, how competitive do we want to be nationally? The Big Ten all charters, you know, the Big 12 all charters. The Southeast Conference, with their football money, they all, they all charter. Um, we're for, fortunate at the University of Oregon. Um, you know, we we have a group that makes sure that, that we charter. And, you know, it was one of the things we didn't charter when I originally got here. Um, just every now and then we would charter a flight. But when we had a little success, when we, you know, one, went to a couple Sweet 16s, uh, Elite Eight, a Final Four, you know, the program just said, hey, we want to try to stay at this level, and I think it's important that we, we do that. Um, it cuts down, like I said, the, the length of our season. It cuts down on the wear and tear of our players. It helps them academically. Um, so we do charter, and it, it is an advantage for us. Um, I tell our players that, you know, don't take it for granted. 
it's something that's it's good, but we go out and raise the money, and, and we have an individual who covers most of the cost, and, and that really gives us a chance, John. And, I, you know, Arizona was the first one to do it. They, they started chartering everywhere. And then, you know, UCLA and some of us have, have tried to stay competitive. Um, and so I think most of the league is now, John, uh, but I'm not sure everybody is. And um, but I think it's something if we want to compete on a national scale, you know, we've we've got to stay in line with what the other power five schools are doing and the Big East, all charters. And, um, you know, it's kind of comes down to a commitment by the school. And we're fortunate at Oregon that, you know, we want to try to compete at a national level. And and we've been pretty well taken care of. It'll be Thursday at Arizona, Saturday at Arizona State. You're going to want to play some zone against Arizona State, by the way. And then next week, USC and UCLA at Matthew Knight Arena. For those listening who want to see the Ducks, uh, these next two weeks are huge. Uh, Dana Altman, thank you for joining us. I will catch you down the road. I appreciate hearing from you. All righty. Take care, John. All right. There he is, Dana Altman, University of Oregon men's basketball coach. Yeah, it may surprise you that charter flights are not mandatory in the Pac-12 conference. The conference leaves that to the individual schools. Some charter, some don't. I only know that because I'm looking into it. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Who else do we need on this show? Somebody uh, said, hey, get, uh, get, get Dana Altman on the show. Who else do you want to hear on the BFT? You play producer in this segment, 503-417-7575. Give me a guest you'd love to hear on this show. You can call in or you can tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT, if uh, you want to suggest your guest. You get to play producer on the show. I like the talk. What jumped out at me? Uh, first of all, I'm interested in the, the charter stuff in the Pac-12. It's, um, it's not mandatory. Uh, most of the contenders do travel via charter. Uh, some of the bottom feeders in the conference do not, and I find that interesting. I just think it's, it's not only a player fatigue issue in some cases. Uh, yeah, as Dana Allman talked about, it's the longest season, and he talked about the fact that they get help with the charter. It's expensive stuff. I've looked into the financials of it. And it's true, Arizona and UCLA are outspending everybody in this conference when it comes to men's basketball. Oregon's trying to hang in there, so are Utah and some others. But it's interesting to me to kind of look at uh, not just the fatigue factor of traveling commercial, going through TSA, having to wait for a flight, getting home a day later, stuff like that, little things like that. It's also a potential recruiting advantage. Hey, come to our school versus them. You're going to fly charter with us. With them, you're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to get home a day later. You're going to get for a night game in the Pac-12 conference, you'll get home late. So I think there's, uh, you know, a uh, advantage there in recruiting. I also think it's really interesting to kind of to balance, to try to balance the dilemma that Dana Altman has and Oregon has after getting to a Final Four with that team that had Dylan Brooks, Tyler Dorsey, Jordan Bell, young Peyton Pritchard. You know, because after you make a Final Four, what happens? Suddenly you're in living rooms and you're in conversations 
with recruits that you've never been in before. And you have access to players and talent that uh, was unthinkable a year or two earlier. So uh, I think there's a real uh, problem there. And Oregon State may have run into it, too, in making an Elite Eight on a smaller scale uh, with Wayne Tinkle. But there's a real problem there or a real temptation there to maybe take a player who's a little better than what you're used to getting and in some cases, four- and five-star guys are one-and-done type players like Troy Brown Jr. and uh, Lewis King and Bull Bull. There's a temptation to take those players because they're so good. They're so talented. But at the same time, if you take those players, what are you doing? You are changing the entire philosophy of your program. And it's why I think some of the Blue Blood programs that we saw around the Final Four or the Elite Eight as perennial participants – have suddenly uh, wobbled a little bit. And we've seen coaches in some cases just say, I'm not doing this. I, you know, I'm, I'm in the transfer portal, NIL, plus one and done. No, I can't do this. And I think it's a really interesting dilemma for, uh, for Dana Altman and his program to be in. And I think, you know, last year I thought was really disappointing because I thought they were going to be much better than they were last year. And then at the end of the year, it became evident as Dana Altman was in Vegas for the Pac-12 tournament. You know, I was watching him coach. I was listening to him talk after the game. And I had a conversation with him, and I felt like he was pretty exasperated. Like, I don't, I, I don't say this lightly. I don't think Dana Altman liked his team a year ago. And I, and I don't mean that as in, like, with disrespect. There's just some teams that you can tell the coach likes the players. You can tell that he likes his players and they listen and they translate what he's giving in practice to games and they're, they play with maturity and they play with joy and they're coachable. And I think, you know, it's like, you know, you ask a parent, do you have a favorite child? And everyone, no, I love all my children the same. Coaches are going to say that. But I could tell that Dana Altman, at the end of last year, I just don't think he liked his team. And I started to wonder this year at different points, was he just was this going to be a repeat? And would it be enough to make Dana Altman, 64 years old, think about, hey, maybe I don't want to do this anymore? Like throw in the keys. I had somebody else, an administrator at another Pac-12 university, you know, reached out to me when in the early part of the season when Oregon was struggling and said, "If I'm, what is Dana Altman, you know, why, he doesn't need this. You know, he's going to go to the Hall of Fame as a coach. He's been to Final Four. He doesn't need this. And I kind of wondered, were we were we going to watch a repeat and then maybe see Dana Altman go, you know, I don't want to do this. Now, he has a really good recruiting class coming in next year, and it includes, you know, Jackson Shellstad, the kid from West Lynn High School, who outplayed Bronny James at the Les Schwab Invitational. And so I think – there may be a pivot back to maybe let's have some guys in the program for multiple years. Maybe let's have some players that, you know, at least in the case of Shellstead, who has a local tie. Um, and let's see how that glues together. But the next two weeks, I think, are so important for Altman. It's why I wanted him on the show. So important. They're going to Arizona on Thursday. It's going to be a huge game. It's an ESPN game. It's huge. They'll play at Arizona on Thursday. Then they're going to turn around and play Arizona State on Saturday. So if you're Oregon, who has, you know, struggled through this season, 
you have an opportunity now in these two games to, you know, start to think about or make give the committee something to think about. And not only that, oh, by the way, you have a chance to uh, get the victories that you need to slip into the top four spots in the conference standings. I think UCLA and Arizona are vulnerable. They're, they're also pretty good and they have a head start. But I think they're vulnerable. I haven't seen great basketball from Arizona State in the last two weeks. They're wobbling. Bobby Hurley, uh, mostly, like I, I went to that game in, in Tempe a couple weeks ago when he played USC. And USC went into a zone in the first half. Arizona State couldn't shoot him out of it. They don't have a shooter. So keep an eye on Saturday when Oregon plays Arizona State on Saturday night on ESPN2. Like, if Oregon doesn't play some zone, they weren't scouting. Because I've watched in multiple weeks now Arizona State struggle with teams that are playing a decent zone defense. And Arizona State just doesn't have the talent to get out of it. So the, the emphasis is get this first one on Thursday on ESPN at 7.30 against Arizona. And then, you know, if you can get the sweep in Arizona, the Ducks come back home and play USC and UCLA in back-to-back games. That's three, you know, quad one opportunities in the net rankings for Oregon. You get Arizona, you get USC, you get UCLA, uh, and let's see what happens. Uh, And I think so the next two weeks, I think, really are going to tell us, is this team dangerous enough to go on a run and make the tournament? Or... Is this going to kind of be a repeat of last year? Because if they can get through the next two weeks, even with a 2-2 two and two record, or in best-case scenario, 3-1, and one, or 4-0, and oh, look out, like two games at home. I don't put it past them. They're going to be on ESPN four times in a row. They're going to play, you know, four quality opponents, and they're going to have four opportunities to close the gap between them and the top of the standings. After that, it's Washington, Washington State, it's Oregon State, and it's Cal and Stanford, and then on to the tournament. Oregon has a chance here in the next month to make some hay is what I'm saying. I want you to leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I feel a little weird giving uh, basketball coaching advice to Dana Altman <laughs> when I said, uh, you know, USC, you're going to need to play some zone. He didn't acknowledge it, by the way. <laughs> he texted me after. <laughs> he said, thanks, I hope we play well. <laughs> so, uh, but it's true. Like, I'm sure they're scouting, you know, they're scouting, they're watching games. But I was there in person. I've never, Bobby Hurley, USC went into a zone in the first half. Arizona State doesn't have shooters. He's got a bunch of transfers on his team. He's struggling a little bit with team chemistry. Uh, the Cambridge kids, uh, it's a brother combination, are really uh, good players, but they're not they're not leaders. They don't assert themselves. Like, you know, when the other team's on a run, you need your best players to assert themselves. They don't. They just kind of disappear in the game. Like, I, you know, you, we've all seen players that are good players who just kind of disappear, and it's curious. And you're like, where, where did they go? Um, you know, Bobby Hurley's dealing with some of that. So at the end of the first half of that uh, Arizona State-USC game in Tempe, uh, I'm highly entertained by Bobby Hurley on the bench. 
as he's screaming at the officials and shouting and taking his jacket off. Anybody who's ever seen him coach understands how intense he is. The game, the half isn't even over. There's about four seconds left in the half. He leaves the bench on a sprint and heads up the tunnel at the arena toward the locker room. The horn sounded, and I could just see him disappearing into the tunnel. He was so mad he wanted to get to the locker room, I'm sure, to blow some steam off before his team got in there. Uh, really frustrating. What do you make of Oregon's season? Steven, you're a basketball guy. Peter, you've been watching college basketball. What do you make of the Ducks and where they are right now? Uh, yeah, just to back it up here for the three-point three point shooting, they are 282nd in the nation and shooting a whopping 29% in Pac-12 play. So, yes, I think they should zone a little bit. I think you're yeah. right on that, John. Uh, Arizona State. See, that's yeah. good coaching. That is. That's good coaching. No, you, you are, you're a great scout. Maybe you should be on the scouting reports for other well, teams. It was evident. it was evident. When USC went into the zone and I watched Arizona State miss like eight or nine straight outside shots, I was like, man, this is like 24-hour fitness basketball. Uh, uh, but, yeah, go on. Oh, yeah, for the Ducks, though, I mean, you know, 13-9, they've had a couple really bad losses. We talked about that earlier in the season, just some bad losses. They started out the season 2-4, and four, um, losing to UC Irvine in that stretch. But they were never getting healthy, and we saw at the PKI, they got really hurt, really banged up. They're starting to get a lot healthier, and I know and follow Dante still not 100%, but he came off the bench last game. Um, you know, I watched that Utah game uh, a lot. I watched most of that game. Nate Biddle had played another nice game. Like I, you look forward going to the the games in Arizona, and you talk about Arizona being you know vulnerable, and I agree. I think they are somewhat vulnerable. I think all college basketball teams are vulnerable this year. I don't think there's really one team that is head and shoulders above everybody else. But what Arizona does is they got two really good big guys. Uh, Tubelis and Balo, they're ginormous inside. They're the two best players. But the Ducks can match up with that, right, with Infali Dante, with Nate Biddle. Like, they have big guys to match, and then it's all going to be on the guards. And if the Ducks can make shots, because the Ducks struggle to make jump shots as well. And that's been one of the big struggles all season. So I think for the Ducks, like, the size isn't going to hurt them, but it's when they make jump shots, that's when they're really they're really playing well because they're a very athletic team. They're great from the two-point range. You know, one of the best two-point shooting teams in the nation one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the nation. They just got to start making some jump shots and be consistent. But this is a huge opportunity. And I think, you know what, I think if you could split these ones and split the USC, UCLA, you got a shot, you're right on the bubble, I think. I also think, look, for as bad as the season started for Oregon, and, you know, as, as down as they were and people were going, you know, is this the end of Dana Altman? Look where they're sitting in the standings. Like, you, you can't help but look up right now and see them positioned – in a way that is very opportunistic. They're 7-4. and four. They are um, a game back of Utah for the four spot, which gets you a bye in the, uh, in the opening round of the Pac-12 tournament. They are um, uh, a half a game back, uh, excuse me, a game and a half back of USC. They are a game and a half back of second place. They are two games out of first. Like, it could be a lot worse, like, for how this season has gone. And so... They get an opportunity. They play, you know, three of the four teams in front of them in the next four games. So, and the team that's right on their tail, and, uh, Arizona State. And you talk about being a game back of Utah or half game back. They've swept them this season. So, you yeah. know, they've already taken care of business there. So, the tiebreaker will go to the Ducks. Like, they, they've had some good wins as well. We, we've, we harp on the bad losses, but they've had some really good wins as well. And I think this team, when healthy and when playing, you know, well, they are just as talented as any team in the Pac-12. I think they can go 
two and two or three and one in the next four. I think they'll beat Arizona State uh, on Saturday. But so the real question is, can they win at Arizona, and can they split the LA schools at home? I think they can. I think there's there's a three and one uh, record in the next four out there for Oregon. Meanwhile, Oregon State is sitting at three and eight. They're trying to avoid the cellar. But here's the bright side for Oregon State, like. You know, I think it would be a big victory for Oregon State if they could get to six wins in conference play. They're at three and eight right now. There's enough left on the schedule. They play both Stanford and Cal. Uh, problem is that they play both UC, both LA schools, both Arizona schools. I don't see them winning any of those. And then they play Washington, Washington State. Now, I'm not optimistic that they can beat Washington, Washington State, but I think that there might be one win we don't see out there possibly for Oregon State. Plus, I think they can beat Stanford and Cal. So if Oregon State can get to six wins, at least they avoid in the Pac-12 tournament having to start off playing the most difficult game. And, you know, Cal is sitting in the basement. It's just an embarrassment what has happened to Cal basketball. I'll get into that more in the next week or so. But uh, I think it's going to be really fun to watch the next month in particular of Oregon basketball and Pac-12 basketball to see what happens. I don't love UCLA and Arizona. I think they're vulnerable. I've seen them not play well and lose and look, you know, it's just puzzling to me. And they don't pass the eye test for me. Uh, Peter Sampson in the Pulse is coming up. Peter, what are you going to do on the show today? Uh, yeah, we've got a lot to get to. Sean Payton to the Broncos. Just the coaching carousel continues. I'm curious how much better that actually makes them. And look, the Trailblazers, I don't want to give it away, but in that win last night, they did something they haven't done in more than six weeks. I want to break that down as well. Stay tuned. Find out what did the Blazers do last night that they haven't done in more than six weeks. Some big Blazer games coming up on the horizon, including next Monday at home, the Milwaukee Bucks in town. So Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up uh, here in just a moment. Uh, stay tuned for that opening monologue. It's always great. Uh, the BFT's back tomorrow with another great show, efforting Jonathan Smith and Dan Lanning on the program on what is a signing day, but uh, without the hoopla. Plus, uh, you grab a podcast to this show wherever you get a podcast. The BFT, not here for a long time, just a good time.